0: Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm Which has da- been a
1: while at this point. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Yeah, sorry. It's been a while. <laughs>
0: I'm, why am I pretending like there's structure <laughs> yeah. to the movie journals? They're the least structured. Uh, it's sort of in and out. Yeah. Uh, I get, or, or maybe they're actually the most structured because we go back and forth and back and forth. That's true. Um, but I got a few to knock out here because I've seen more movies than you. They're not nearly as many as i could have and there's actually a handful of rewatches i'm not even going to mention cuz i spent the weekend oh, sick wow. uh, i sat on the couch um rewatching movies i i casually threw in and then ended up watching without stopping uh, all 3 hours of the thin red line the other night oh wow
1: <laughs> you casually threw in the thin red line
0: i was like i was homesick and i was like um, my my wife was out with friends and i was like uh i want to at least wait for her to get home before i go to bed and there's nothing on tv i went to true tv mm-hmm. and it was just uh the carbon hour effect which i've already seen like all of those uh true tv is now my go-to <laughs> okay. for uh killing time impractical jokers adam ruins everything carbon hour effect
1: not those who you watch impractical jokers oh man have you watched it uh it's it's often on while i'm on my it is often on while i'm at my gym so i'll, I'll watch it but without any of the without the sound oh you're missing out it it's, seems very stressful to me it's very funny
0: um, and sometimes it is incredibly stressful. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I was like, um, I'll just, I, yeah, I'll just, throw, she'll probably be home in an hour. i oh, throw okay. it in. She was home like two hours later and then like she came home and we like talked, how was your night and everything. And then she was like, I'm going to get her for bed. And I was like, well now there's only 50 minutes left in the movie. I guess I have to see this through. Exactly. Um, so I guess I did actually stop anyway, but that's not one of the movies we're talking
1: about. All right. Um, well, what is one of them?
0: Uh, what are a, three of them? A movie uh, right off the bat that n- uh, not only do I know you've seen, but we actually talked about it in the most recent uh, regular episode, which mm. is Tim Burton's Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That's right, yes. Um, which I thought was, uh, I, I would give it a B plus. I thought it was really terrific. It was really, in many ways, a return to form for him in terms of uh, its tone and the fact that, I mean, for the first time in a long time, I feel like Tim Burton was having fun making this movie.
1: I do. You know abs- what I mean? Absolutely. When I think of this versus Alice in Wonderland, everything about Alice in Wonderland from the very decision to have him do it to every decision in it felt perfunctory. This felt like he once again, he's returning. To, it's a return to form almost emotionally because his whole thing for a long time was a real heart for misfits. Well, that's what this movie's all about. And and I feel like the way the characters relate to each other seems real and organic, like I don't know it just it uh, return to form I think is about right it's still it, it to me it doesn't even touch like some of his best movies from you know at this point twenty years ago, but uh twenty five years ago in fact um but yeah. it's it's if he kept going in this direction, I'd be thrilled yeah
0: and i mean I would say this is his best live action movie in. God, I don't know. Twenty years, maybe. I like the Frankenweenie movie quite a bit.
1: I like Sweeney Todd, and I also like Sleepy Hollow. But
0: see, and I was never a big fan of Sleepy Hollow. So where am I? How far how far back am I going then?
1: You like Mars Attacks? Attacks. Yeah.
0: Is this his best live action movie since Mars Attacks? (laughs) That's twenty years. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah. uh, Maybe it is. But wait. Okay, so I know I don't care for Big Fish. Do you like Big Fish? I like
0: Big Fish. I would. I think I like this better though. Okay. uh, it also felt like it had, it had. There, there's a darkness to Miss Peregrine that, that not not only the character, I mean not only the movie but the character, but mm-hmm. uh, the whole movie. There's a darkness to it that doesn't feel like Tim Burton putting on his costume of like this is Tim Burton darkness, right? Like it's which is kind of what Dark Shadows felt like to me in a lot of yeah. ways. This there's some real. Unsettling, creepy stuff there's um, a kid
1: who walks around with bees on his face all the time yeah
0: there's also a dead kid who just stays in the bedroom upstairs apparently all the time because it's, yeah because the day recycles over and over so i guess his body never decomposes so <sighs> there's always a dead kid upstairs yeah. and at one point he is brought to life by proxy it's the creepiest scene in the yeah. it's the most. If that's that scene is the most uh, overtly like horror movie ish scene in the movie. Although there are a number of them, and I really just I, I found it to be uh, really enjoyable. It also has because there's other you know Tim Burton. There's not just the dark weirdness. He's also uh, an old school rollicking adventure type of movie type of guy. Mm -hmm. And there is a scene where a bunch of reanimated skeletons fight some super tall, invisible monsters covered in cotton candy. Yeah. That is so weird, but so delightful in, in terms of its, uh, uh, exuberance and it's fun. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I had a huge grin on my face during that whole battle sequence. Yeah. um, and I would say, uh, or but I will uh, before we move on, repeat what I said on the podcast when we were talking about it with Asterios. I do think Samuel Jackson is the weak link here because I don't, I don't think he's on the same page as everyone else.
1: I think he's he's definitely playing it up, and there are elements to what he's doing that I like. Were it a different film. This is a good villain from a different movie. <laughs>
0: that's a, I think that yeah because he's Samuel L. Jackson. He's not bad. I mean, yeah. like, he's never been bad at anything. He's just wrong. He's yeah. off the mark. The, the
1: design of the character is is appropriately frightening.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, but, but yeah, his but performance. He's, um, I'll repeat what I said again when we talked about it. Um, the difference between Samuel L. Jackson and Eva Green is that Samuel L. Jackson's being a ham, yeah. and Eva Green is being arch. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with being a ham in the movie that where that's what what's being called for but eva green is definitely more in is more simpatico with tim burton in this in this case she's getting uh what he's what he's going for i also want to talk real quick about chris o'dowd yeah and how great he is and also he's a great tim burton type character because there's so many family films where there's the um uh disconnected dad the dad Mm -hmm. who's not very emotional um and this didn't feel like perfunctory, like you're talking about this, didn't no. feel like the family film dad who maybe needs to, he needs to be turned into a cat for a few days or something to learn right. a lesson. It's not that <laughs> kind of disconnected dad. Like Chris O'Dowd is a bad dad. Like he's not yeah. abusive. He's just a bad father. And it's, and it kind of is kind of the in the gut sometimes the way he talks about and to his kid.
1: And yet, and this, this speaks to what I, li- one of the things I like about the movie is that, emotionally like you you talk about the scene where this kid's corpse is essentially used as a puppet that scene as horrific as it is springs from this very odd teenage not angst but just like pettiness and jealousy oh, right, uh, it's yeah. it's very it's very real and very raw everything with uh, terrence stamp there comes a moment when the main character calls oh yeah, yeah. his his grandfather but before his grandfather was even a father at that point, I yeah. think. Um, and that's a that's a really nice moment. And
0: Oh, yeah, I'll say real quick, the time travel stuff, I don't think it makes sense. I gave up trying to make I sense gave of up, it yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, a certain amount of the way, tr- way through. I don't think it's important for it to make sense. <laughs> I'm sure maybe Tim Burton could sit you down, or the authors of the books could sit you down and explain how it works. But I stopped caring at a certain point. That was yeah. That's
1: exactly the same with me Uh, because I'm like, this is keeping me from liking a movie I like, and I don't. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that's the thing is, Chris O'Dowd is a bad father, but it's also clear that as much as we like Terrence Stamp's character, right. He wasn't a great father either. In yeah. his in the midst and of his so nobility, bad. he's been a negligent
0: father. And so there's sympathy for Chris O'Dowd through that. Yeah. yeah I think really so. good stuff. Um I was very very pleasantly surprised. I took uh my, my wife and I took our nephew. Did he uh, like to see it? it? He liked it quite a bit. He spent um he um closed his eyes uh for certain sure. certain points. He was he was sitting on the farm. My wife was in, the, in between the two of us, so I didn't know about all this, but he was, like, telling her, like, tell me when I can open my eyes. Okay. So there were certain se- sections that he was not uh, not all, all all in for. But he, Understand he liked the movie quite a bit overall. Uh, the next day, I went to the California Science Center, where, for the time being, um, they are every day at 5 p.m. in the IMAX theater showing uh, Terrence Malick's Voyage of Time, the IMAX experience, which mm-hmm. is the... Uh, uh, sort of 45 minute version of voyage of time. Um, there's a 90 minute, like a feature length version that I think played at Cannes. maybe, um, okay. that I don't think has a release date here. Hmm. And that one is narrated, I think by Kate Blanchett, this one is narrated by, um, Brad Pitt. Hmm. Uh, and it is just sort of the history of earth or the history of time or the history of life. Yeah. Um, it's essentially—I'm uh, the billionth person to make this uh, observation—but it's that one segment of tree of life, yeah. just expanded um, with with voiceover narration by Brad Pitt, um, and it's uh, completely transfixing. It's not in 3D, which was a, which is a boon for me, but like clearly, I think when people when people go to the science center and buy a ticket for an IMAX, they're expecting it to be 3d because yeah. they told, they told us when they bought the tickets, they were like, you know, this isn't 3d, right? Yeah. So apparently that was a, uh, and it must be like the, the, they didn't even change the, like after the movie, the screen said like, please deposit your 3d glasses right. on the way out. Clearly everything else they showed there is 3d. Um, but it's, uh, absolutely, uh, a beautiful use of, um, the IMAX, Format, uh, you know, um, you're seeing like this huge like field with a mountain like range in the backdrop in a uh, background. And you only like, you can look, you're looking at it for a while before you realize, like if you look down, Oh, there's a stream in front of like at the, in the very foreground of the picture, because it's mm-hmm. the picture so big, you didn't even realize you were yeah. essentially standing in front of a, a stream at first. Um, it's beautiful. And it has all sorts of stuff that it, like, it definitely has some, Um, CGI to make just like tree of life did for dinosaurs or other like prehistoric creatures. And there's also stuff that like looks like it might be CGI, but also could be like practical effects done under a microscope or something to Mm -hmm. show the expansion of the universe and and stuff like that. Uh, It's really beautiful. And at times you kind of forget it's Terrence Malick and you just think you're like watching a nature, a really beautiful nature documentary where like Brad Pitt is narrating like, You know, the single celled organisms from the sea, you know, came up to shore. And then all of a sudden he'll say, What is nature? (laughs) Like, (laughs) what is death? Like, this very Terrence Malick type of line. Yeah. Um, It's fantastic. If you uh, are in a city where it's playing, definitely see it uh, while it's playing. And then uh, finally, before we move on to uh, yours. I saw a Netflix documentary, which I also, I got to see on the big screen, which I'm glad that I did. Although I think most people unfortunately won't get Mm -hmm. to see it this way because it's on Netflix, but it's, it's by, um, Kevin McDonald, who we we talked about on a recent episode. Um, uh, we talked about him. We talked about uh, directors who do both documentary and narrative films. Mm -hmm. Um, and we talked about Kevin McDonald clearly being much stronger as a documentarian yeah another <laughs> okay. uh another uh, uh what's what's the word i'm looking for triumph uh but uh, not an- another another notch in that category it's not the word i was looking for but um sky ladder, sky ladder the art oh, okay. of Go chang i think psycho si- chang i'm not sure how you say the guy's name um but it is a documentary about a chinese artist who uh works with he is an artist who works with gunpowder and fireworks. Okay, that's his his medium. He does paintings; they're not paintings. He does things on canvas where he um, tapes down certain point, certain parts, and then lays gunpowder gun down, and then like smothers it, and then lights it on fire until mm-hmm. so the black smoke from the gunpowder becomes images. Um, uh, and that's really cool. But then he also does fireworks installations, which yeah. are just um incredibly detailed and massive uh firework shows that are sometimes done in conjunction like he did one um in uh was in buenos aires or uh somewhere where it was like um on the riverfront where there was a there were tango dancers and like Mm -hmm. the fireworks were in time to the music and the tango dancing uh but then some of them are just firework shows or some of them like he did the um Fireworks for the 2010, uh, Beijing opening ceremony. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's the, the film is shot by, um, uh, why am I drawing a blank on his first name? Yalman. Is it Robert Yalman? The guy, the, the uh, DP who yeah. works with, uh, Wes Anderson right. uh, a lot. Um, and it's fantastically beautiful. He really captures these, um, uh, these firework shows, but what the, but it's not just, uh, a, showcase for this guy's art it actually is a really interesting examination of what it means to be an artist uh, you know one uh, one of the talking heads says and i'm paraphrasing because i don't have my notes in front of me her exact words but she's like an art critic and she talks about how his art with the gunpowder thing it went from um challenging the status quo to servicing it because Mm -hmm. he became so popular that without changing what he's doing, he's no longer challenging anything uh, aesthetically or is no longer seen to be doing that. He's now, he works, you know, with the, there was the, you know, the, the Olympics and there was also, Mm -hmm. I think a G20 conference where he did the thing. So he's working with the Chinese government. um, And there, so there are people in the uh, people interviewed in the movie who were kind of Denigrating this guy for like hmm. essentially becoming um uh, you know no one says no one uses the phrase selling out but essentially no. saying that but at the same time he's got this one uh installation or exhibition or this one thing he wants to do called the sky ladder which is what it sounds like he's with fireworks and with fire making what looks like a, la- a ladder hmm. that goes from the earth up into the heavens um and it's something he's been trying to do for 20 years and through different government problems or weather problems he's never been able to do it um and so the movie tells the story of him while it's also the story of him finally trying to mount the sky ladder in his um uh grandmother's fishing village where she grew up um and not really advertising or telling anybody about it like he yeah. essentially invites there's like the townspeople and like 20 people that he invites. It's not a big show. This is something Mm. that's one of the biggest things he's ever done and the most important things to him, but he really wants to just make sure his grandma can see it. And so it's about it. So it tells the story of him sort of, um, reclaiming his artistic, uh, fervor by pursuing this one, nice. thing it's a it's fantastic and the whole thing's like 75 minutes so that's a all right <laughs> you, you know what you just sold me so yeah definitely check out skylighter hopefully you have a big screen tv to watch it on because it's worth seeing uh i saw it at a theater i'd never been to before the um I, even though i've walked past it a bajillion times because it's in my neighborhood but the saban theater in north hollywood you know that uh it's like a, um uh uh What's it's is it it's like the SAG building or something? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Do you know where that building is over there? Uh, anyway, we're not going to talk about yeah. specifics of North Hollywood uh, geography, yeah. but it's like Magnolia and Lancashire. Um and uh, it's a beautiful. I didn't know. I had no idea there's this enormous beautiful theater in, yeah. in that complex.
1: All right. All right. What's up? So I watched this for class. It is a uh, film directed by Cheryl. Uh, D-U-N-Y-E, Dunya, perhaps, or maybe Dunn, I'm not sure. Uh, D-U-N-Y-E.
0: Hmm.
1: So the film is called The Watermelon Woman, or because everybody in the film is from Philadelphia, The Watermelon Woman. <laughs> uh, as That's is funny. said many, many times, and I just like, ugh, I'm just reminded of my... Uh, Our terrible friend, Dan, uh, who, who always talks about water ice. Um, no offense to you, uh, listeners in Philadelphia, but say water, right? Anyway. No, don't. I like, I actually like the way they say it. Water. Um, water. So, uh, yeah, so the, the film is, is very interesting. It's, it's about 20 years old now. Um, uh, Independently produced, uh, got some distribution, and and played a played a much larger role in like uh, the world of queer cinema. Um, and it is this. There's so much that's interesting about the movie. There's it's it's far from perfect. There's a lot of there's a lot of issues from a just from a story standpoint, from a uh, acting standpoint, that kind of thing. But structurally and and just conceptually, it's so fascinating where. Cheryl so the director Cheryl uh I'm just gonna say Cheryl because she's she's also a character in the film she's (laughs) called Cheryl and I can sidestep that last name thing so in the movie she's a fictionalized version of herself working at a video store and you know there's dialogue between characters everything's fine but then she's also make in the film she's making a documentary about this uh, figure from the 1930s called the simply known as the watermelon woman. and it's one of these, you know, almost like a Hattie McDaniel type, uh, who, you know a, a black actress who shows up in, you know as the often as the maid mm-hmm. uh, in in these movies. So the Cheryl character is making a documentary about the watermelon woman. And then we're also seeing her in real life deal with some of the implications about the things that she's finding out about the watermelon woman and parallels between uh, this woman and her. And then the character of Cheryl is also uh, a lesbian. And that and, and basically everybody she knows is a lesbian. And But they're all, it's all like inner city. Mm-hmm. And so. Sorry, what year? And I, I think you said. Uh, I think it was officially released in 96, 97. Okay. Um, and. You know, it is a little bit, for lack of a better term, amateurish at times, but the concept is so interesting. Uh, especially because she created the character of the watermelon woman. Like this is not, be- mm-hmm. it's of course inspired by any number of actresses from the 1930s, but this one in particular is not a real person. And so she, had, she came up with, you know, titles of the movie she was in. She had to take photographs, uh, and shoot footage that, and made it, make it look specifically older, like the, from the 1930s. Um, and there's just a lot, there's a lot going on with the film, uh, to To enjoy. I think there's some interesting stuff going on racially, there's some interesting stuff going on sexually, uh, but also just from a filmmaking standpoint, just the mix of these two uh, styles of filmmaking uh, and the way that after a while, at first, the documentary stuff is infinitely more interesting than her boring real life. <laughs> uh, but then as the film goes along, the two start to to meld a little bit. It's never to the point where it's like, oh, it's this reality-bending thing. It's not that. It's just that her life becomes more interesting because of this woman that she's inspired by. Uh, it's a very interesting film. I don't know how readily available it is to people, but but I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I think you would like it to uh, – uh, maybe even more than I did.
0: Okay uh i watched the um new kino blu-ray of fritz lang's dr Mabuse, the gambler
1: Mabuse? i bu- now i believe that's a time commitment is it not isn't yeah, that it's super long and a half hours yeah long. okay
0: um i did not watch all in one sitting if okay. that's what you're asking it took me a couple days um it didn't take me as long as i thought it would i no. ended up having a lot of free time that weekend a couple weekends ago um Uh, And yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's terrific. Um, I do think there's, I I think I talked about this um, with the, um, now I can't remember who the director was, but the silent um, Sherlock Holmes movie that Mm -hmm. uh, Flickr Alley put out the Blu-ray of Um, like they're so both movies are so serialized that they could easily be watched as 20 to 30 minute episodes. Like, uh, like Dr. Mabuse is clearly broken down into acts. Like it says, end of act two, mm-hmm. beginning of act three, you know, on the screen. Yeah. Um, and it definitely has that rhythm. So there is, uh, you know, maybe this is just the distance of almost a hundred years. Um, but, uh, it definitely feels long. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but it's also like, it never feels like it's spinning its wheels. Like there's plenty of story. Uh, it's about a, Um, uh, I guess a master criminal slash hypnotist um, named Dr. Mabuse, who uh, is also a master of disguise and shows up in different places and hypnotizes people into essentially losing their money to him and gambling Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, And then the detective or investigator or whatever um, the title is, who's, pursuing him and there's a number of high society characters who come in and out and people who work for dr mabuse and so it's a it's a sprawling story um and definitely worth your time uh and yeah it's never um it it never lags it just its structure makes it feel like uh, and maybe this is just if you approach it in an age of binge watching, if you approach it as yeah. I'm bin- binge watching this series that has, that's made up of, you know, 30 12 or 13 half hour episodes. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's the way to watch it. Sure. Um, it does an interesting thing where, um, the, uh, the, the protagonist essentially changes so much of the first half is about Dr. Mabuse and the, investigator only slowly sort of comes into the picture Mm -hmm. and the second half is very much uh it sort of changes and um is very much about the investigator trying to catch him Mm -hmm. uh that i that i find i find very interesting and it is it's on two discs it's broken up into two parts and back when we lived in chicago and the gene Siskel film center showed it they didn't show it four and a half Hours at a time. They showed yeah. it on two different nights okay. um, broken up in half. So that's another way you could break it up uh, and make the four and a half hours more palatable. Yeah. Uh,
1: what's up? with What's next for you? Okay. So next I watched uh, Christopher Guest's Netflix movie, Mascots. Okay. It's fine. Hmm. Okay. It is, I'll say this. it's It's so interesting. Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show. A Mighty Wind. They're all that same mockumentary format. It's all about people doing a very, a very, spe- being part of a very specific endeavor or a very specific industry or whatever. Um, and a lot of them are just kind of goofy people. Um, and yet, when you watch those three movies together, somehow, even if you watch them all on the same night, I feel like you would come away from it feeling like each film and each character was very... It was unique. And you would not... It would not actually feel that redundant. For whatever reason, mascots... I don't know. Maybe he feels like he needs to... to I don't know. Echo some of his uh, earlier movies. Or maybe he's just run out of creative steam as far as the format of the the mockumentary. But it's just... It too often just it feels very familiar. It just feels like he's hitting a lot of the same old beats. He even brings a character back from Waiting for Guffman, uh, which is surprise, and then proceeds to not really use the character well hmm. at all. Um, you know, it has its moments. Fred Willard obviously is a comic genius, and uh, he's funny no matter what. But I don't know. It's it's and there are elements that are fun. Uh, you know the. When the mascots come out and do their bits, some of the bits are delightful and entertaining. But, I don't know, by and large, it just felt like a, a real waste of resources, uh, a waste of a really great comic cast. Um, and, I, again, these are funny people, and so it does make me chuckle from time to time. But compared to Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, and, My, and A Mighty Wind, you know, it certainly doesn't have the heart of A Mighty Wind um nor does it have just the the just the full-on like to me just the assault of comedy that best in show is um nor does it have kind of the 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 gumption and the the small town uh uh, faux innocence of waiting for government doesn't have any of that it just feels like it feels perfunctory, to go back to that word. It feels mm-hmm. absolutely perfunctory, though obviously still occasionally funny. The premise sounds very similar to Best in Show. It is very similar to Best in Show. And and that's the thing is, you know, maybe it's just you can't compare the two because Best in Show is astounding. Uh, so it could just be that it suffers by comparison. But, um, yeah, boy, oh, boy, what a bummer.
0: All right. Um, the one uh, rewatch that I will bother to talk about um, – because uh, all right, I I gave it back to you, right? I watched E.T. Yes. I had your DVD for uh, six months or so, Mm -hmm. um, and I also hadn't seen E.T. since I was a little kid. Okay. Um, And I watched it again, and the movie's about two hours long, right? And for a little over an hour, I was going, this movie's kind of overrated. Like, there's a lot of, uh, I feel like I already used this term, but there's a lot of wheel spinning going on. Sure. It's, It's real loose and meandering in the first uh in in the first uh hour and 10 minutes or so and there's a lot of um i think really dumb comic relief like yeah. that goes up like the the whole thing with et getting drunk and uh Elliot getting drunk like i understand you need to set up that they have that connection yeah. but that's that sequence goes on too yeah. long you until almost you get wanted- to the frogs because the frog part is great
1: sure um you almost want to say like yes we got it this fish is out of water
0: yeah yeah there's yeah there's way too much and ET. like drew barrymore dressing et up as a lady as a like a weird bag lady is like there's just too much goofy goofy comedy in the first half and then like there's no way the mom thinks that's drew barrymore under that (laughs) she's in the same (laughs) shape shape but then suddenly after that at that point once they leave on halloween Mm -hmm. which is about an hour and 10 hour and 15 minutes in from that point on holy shit i like i took i take it all back it's like it's worth it because it's such a great movie like it's so great by the end i still am a little bummed to find that i um was checking my watch for the first half of it but uh it's uh some serious heavy shit going on in that second half that I didn't remember. I didn't remember that E.T. dies. You for don't a, remember that? No, I didn't oh, well. I, like, I'm telling you, I was a little kid when I okay, last saw it. Yeah. Um, uh, I didn't remember that E.T. technically dies for uh, like 10 minutes or whatever. <laughs> um, uh, and how the movie doesn't pull any punches with that sequence yeah. at all. Uh, uh, yeah, and I was definitely, yeah, Niagara Falls by, by the end of the movie. Niagara Falls. What were you going to say?
1: Because I had something else to say. I so do I think that the first half... Works precisely because it's meandering because it is childhood. It's these kids who don't really have much to do or anywhere to go so that's just hijinks and it's silliness and all that and E.T. is a part of that which means, and so we're we're watching them relate to each other, we're getting connected to them in a completely non-plot way. It's pure character and it's pure atmosphere uh, which I think makes the second half, I think that second half will be powerful no matter what. Mm. But Having spent so much time just the sheer number of minutes that you spend with these characters, regardless of if they're if they're uh, likable or not which they are, but you know regardless of that um, just spending time with with e t and these kids just invests you that much more when when things really start going down so so I like that the first half is is meandering and is kind of arguably spending a little bit more time than it needs to uh to establish things but I, I think it's i think it works well i think the two go well together
0: um now the other thing i'll say is that this dvd you have is from the version where there's some cgi enhancements oh really
1: oh no thank you no thank you at all i did not know that that's the one that i had so i'm gonna have to switch up switch it up
0: yeah that's uh it was it's terrible terrible it, there's
1: it's such is that the one where like et like opens like a shaken can of soda and it goes everywhere or whatever uh or maybe it was beer i don't remember
0: i guess it's beer but i'm, I'm just talking about like there's just the facial expressions yeah or, like him climbing into the tub is clearly like a all of a sudden there's a cgi it e.g it, it, it just it's so it sticks out like a sore thumb yeah it's supposed i guess it's supposed to in some way be more like it's supposed to enhance it and make it more realistic, but it is the opposite. It completely takes it, takes you out of it because we are, we all know what movies are like. We all know from everything around E.T. Yeah. That this is a movie that was made in 1982. Right. Um, and so it is, uh,
1: it's so dissonant whenever that happens. Now Uh, is yours, the version, not yours, it's mine, but the one that you (laughs) watch, but I haven't seen, I don't know if I've seen it on disc and I think, I don't know, Jen might have bought it or somebody might have gotten it for us for, uh, oh, as a present.
0: The, are you going to ask me about flashlights, flashlights. instead of guns? I think it was flashlights instead of guns okay. version.
1: Because yeah. I know that they went back and, and just took that out and I think took out the CG. or and So I think that's the Blu-ray version, which I will have to invest in at some point. Yeah. All right, what's next? Next for me is a film that I think you have seen. I'm okay. not sure. Oh, boy. I also saw this for Class. And it is Jonathan Demme's Beloved. Oh, yeah. Which I have not seen before. And
0: I have seen that a number of times, although not for a long time. Okay. Not since um, I got rid of all my VHS because I had it on VHS and I used to watch it regularly,
1: but I haven't. Well, that's a time commitment. I got to tell you that. Uh, It's about two hours and
0: 40 minutes.
1: Uh, it is like just shy of three. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, and that's, that's okay. Cause the movie is, uh, in many ways, marvelous. Um, it's very, the word that I thought of, but it, this word almost has a negative connotation to it. It's dense. It's a very dense movie mm-hmm. visually, emotionally, uh, thematically. I do, I did not expect there to be element, supernatural elements that are just accepted. Oh. Okay. I didn't know that. I okay. thought it was. I thought it was just a straightforward kind of color purple type movie. i um, okay. And uh, so I'm assuming from this that you have not read the novel, I have not. Uh, a really good novel. I have heard that. Yes, I know it won a number of prizes. Uh, and you know, there's a couple moments here and there. I, I'm not a huge fan of uh, oh, her name escapes me. Tandy Newton. I think it's Tandy. Tandy Newton. Um, I think it's. I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce it. Okay i'm not a i don't dislike her performance but it's the kind of performance that immediately makes me just makes my shoulders hunch and makes makes my eyes narrow because i'm like all right what are you doing and it's, i don't necessarily blame her it could just be the type of character that makes me do that where it's just like all right this character is representative of something obviously um and and then it's like oh and she's childlike and you know but so but, that's that's my was, first this is kind of a debut for her yes right? it was uh but that's the thing is that's my first reaction to the character over the course of the film of course I, I i do get to you get to know her she starts to develop more and then the 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 relationships that everybody has um are are deepened and wonderful performances all around i i gotta say i think danny glover is an actor that i think I have neglected over the years. He's a guy that I think, you know, having not seen any lethal weapon movies, um, there's only a handful of movies I've seen with him in it, and they're rarely the type of movie, with the exception of something like Grand Canyon. Um, I haven't seen a lot of the movies that would really showcase him as an actor, and this really showcases him as an actor, and it's absolutely marvelous. Um, and and just, and the, the visual, the visual element to it, it's very, I said it was dense before. It's very deep. Uh, wh- that's a weird thing to say. I don't mean deep, like emotionally deep. Right. I mean that like, I feel like I could step into the frame and immersive? It was, and it's immersive. I feel like I, and, and, and it draws me in. I feel like I could step into that forest. I could step into that, uh, that, you know, rickety house, um, And what's more is it just, when I think of Jonathan Demme, this is not the type of movie I think of. Um, And yet, I can't, in a way, he's the perfect director for this because he's not a director who's afraid of any material. He will do whatever the film requires. So, you know, when there's a POV, you know, rape scene where you have guys that are, you know, I'm sorry to be so graphic, but I mean, they're even like, like sucking on like the woman's nipples and stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and it's POV. So, I mean, it is tough. And I feel like there are a lot of directors that would probably shy away from that, but he definitely is not one that would. And he steers into it. So he steers into like the moments of, of, of sheer brutality and, and, and disgust. And I don't know. I feel like, um, with Oprah Winfrey,
0: not only being in the cast of being a producer and being Mm -hmm. such a, Champion of tony Morrison, and you know, mm-hmm. with her, and the book club, and this is at the height of you know his late '90s height of the Oprah Winfrey book yeah. club and stuff. Do you think Jonathan Demme maybe felt more confident with this material, knowing that he had Oprah Winfrey in his corner? Do you know what I mean? As a as a white director making sure this story of a tony Morrison novel, like uh, a white male director making this story, do you think that Oprah Winfrey's mere presence and support? Is something that um, gave him more of
1: a sure hand. Well, I honestly don't know if at the time he was thinking in terms of of well, it's like I don't know if I'm qualified to tell this story because uh, uh, I don't know. I think he just maybe thought the story was interesting, but having a powerhouse like Oprah Winfrey on his side probably allowed him the freedom to ma- to adapt this book the way he wanted to adapt it, which is a three-hour, really dense, (laughs) really brutal movie, and he didn't have to worry about studios saying, hey, can you cut this down a little bit?
0: Maybe I'm looking at this with contemporary eyes, where if it were announced today that they were making a movie of Toni Morrison's famed novel beloved and yeah. it was being directed by a white man. Like that would people, there
1: people, there'd be some shade thrown. People would be up in arms. I'd say some, some people. Yeah.
0: Um, and there
1: possibly were at the time we just didn't have the internet or we didn't have <laughs> as much internet then. Exactly. Um, we <laughs> all know. had, we all had three, we had three internet. Yeah. Um, now we're up to like 15.
0: Uh, yeah, but now you're making me want to watch the movie again. Cause I, uh, like I said, I used to watch it a lot and I have not seen it in
1: maybe a dozen years for reasons. I can't recall. Like or that I can't point to, I was under the impression that the film had gotten a mixed reaction from critics. I look back, that, there's no reason for me to think that. Critics, by and large, really liked the oh, movie. Okay. I think, honestly, I think I picked up on some weird thing that the movie was a big Oscar contender, but did not get any real Oscar support. But
0: what, I wonder if it, it probably wasn't... Maybe it was, a, it was a box office
1: disappointment? I think that might be part of it, but... Like, maybe...
0: People were expecting another, like, crowd-pleaser, like... Not a crowd-pleaser, but a populist hit like The Color Purple. Sure. And this is
1: or a like a art movie. Yeah, or like a Schindler's List or something. I think that's the key, is, like, despite the presence of, of Oprah Winfrey and it being kind of a... Uh, could be seen as a prestige picture, it is not a prestige picture like, if you'll pardon me, The Imitation Game, yeah. which just, like, welcomes you in.
0: But you know, this, like... Uh, Oprah Winfrey, like, being great friends with Roger Ebert mm-hmm. being involved with Jonathan Demme being involved with Ava DuVernay. I think that she has a reputation as being like a voice for the, for, uh, the, the populace and being mm-hmm. a populist voice. But I think when it comes to movies and art in general, I think she actually has really good taste. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what we've seen in the things that she's aligned herself, uh, herself with. Yeah. Um, though I have although, not seen weirdly, Lee Daniels, the Butler. Um, Oh, that's an awesome movie too. Yeah. Um, Uh, bookmark this because oprah winfrey will be coming up again later in the podcast
1: okay for a moment i thought you said you were going to say bookmark this because we've got her uh coming in (laughs) in uh, like three weeks
0: i caught up with a movie i've been meaning to see for a long time and was not disappointed um in the least actually this is um one of my favorite movies of the year actually at this point uh i saw whit stillman's love and friendship all right have you seen it I have not. I think you dig it. It's uh, it's fantastic. Um, and it is probably, I have to check my, my list, but I would say it's probably my favorite comedy of 2016 so far. Mm. Um, and it is uh, nonstop funny. Uh, because it's a, um, when we think of Jane Austen stories, it's based on a Jane Austen novel. When we think of Jane Austen stories, we tend to think of, um them as romance or love stories right. a, lo- a lot of the times um but this is one in which the um the the love or the pairings or relationships have all <laughs> semblance of romance or actual emotion drained out of them everything mm-hmm. is a transaction everything is about um power and benefit and um manipulation um and i guess you could probably rightly call it a very cynical movie for that but it's it's so unceasingly funny that uh it's not a darkly
1: cynical movie it's Mm. a it's a happily cynical movie yeah, that is definitely not what I thought the film was. Um, but I know a lot of people that really love it, and I think the only Whit Stillman I've seen is Last Days of Disco, which okay. I absolutely adore. Um, have you seen it? Uh, I don't. I, the only thing I've ever seen of his was the Amazon pilot he did
0: called The Cosmopolitans, I think, which I thought that was terrible. Right, yeah. I didn't like that at all. Mm. So I was
1: surprised to find that I liked this so much. I think you would like Last Days of Disco, but I'm not sure. Um, <clears throat> an argument could be made that he either lo- that he either loves or hates his characters. I think he loves them, but I think he also has a views them with a very clear eye. Um, so okay, okay. Next for me, let's see. Uh, I've lost track here. All right. So I had a friend in from out of town. Who uh, was really in the mood to watch horror movies And uh, his wife is not a big horror person And so he doesn't really have a lot of opportunity to watch horror movies So I said, well, don't you worry We're going to watch a bunch of them But she was here too (laughs) Um, But uh, she and Jen just were watching uh, uh, Marie Antoinette in in our bedroom Um, So we watched three movies Uh, I won't talk about them all at once I'll talk about them one by one uh, the first one we watched, and I, I, you know, this is not merely a rewatch for me, but it's a film that I watched recently, uh, which, which is John Carpenter's The Thing. Mm. So, and I talked about that a few weeks ago because I had to review the Blu ray. And um, I'll say this it's a film that uh, is, has tremendous atmosphere and obviously wonderful special effects, and I think some really great performances. I will say that if you, that it's a film that. Mm, you shouldn't think about too much from a from a logic standpoint um and from a story standpoint because you know a horror movie doesn't need to have the most logical plot and the characters don't need to do the most logical things it needs to be about atmosphere it needs to be about mood and in some cases special effects so everything that a horror movie is supposed to be the thing does but if you actually look at a few moments i think it really starts to to drop off like in the last 20 minutes and then it has a great ending by i mean like the very last scene is really solid but like the last 15 minutes are just a little bit standard and not that interesting where it's like the characters are thing like well let's just, let's just blow the thing up you know and just that's not what they say but that's it's essentially that like and up until that moment you have characters that are willing I don't know that are, that are trying to outsmart this thing. They're trying to come up, they're trying to improvise, you know, how can we figure out somebody is the thing, you know, how how do we do this? So for it to arrive at a place of let's just blow it up, uh, seems almost as though the, the writer was, I think John Carpenter wrote it by himself, but I can't attest to that. Um, but it almost felt like the writer was like, okay, we got our big set pieces out of the way. So let's just end this thing. And then get to our final scene, which is, which is much more in the spirit of the film before this ending. The ending is fine, but, a mo- but an ending that is merely fine in mm-hmm. a movie that is great is unfortunate. Mm. Um, but it's still a movie that I stand by for a number of reasons. Because, like I said, all the things that a horror movie is supposed to be, it is. Um, and I know that, and I know I gave you my old Blu-ray copy of it, and I would really like to get your take on it someday.
0: Yeah, you definitely will, as long as we're still doing this uh, movie journal thing. When I do get around to watching okay. the thing for the first time, uh, but instead I had uh, other things to watch, um, including a documentary. I was very excited to to see, um, and it mostly lived up to it. Although it didn't exceed my expectations, you know. that? I don't know if you know that. Like, I wanted it to be good. It was good. It didn't blow me away. Um, but the documentary is called "Author: The J.T. Leroy Story." Oh yeah, okay. Uh, and I don't know if you know the the story here, what I, the J.T.
1: Leroy thing. I feel like I just saw a, like a trailer for it or something.
0: So there's a writer named Laura Albert um, who wrote a novel called Sarah under the pen name. It was a it was a novel written in the first person under the name J.T. Leroy, which is the 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 character that she created who is writing this this memoir that the right. novel is about his mother sarah um who was um sexually abused and um as a young boy was um prostituted as a young boy and uh whose mother was a prostitute who hung around uh, truck stops and mm-hmm. uh, you know um, uh serviced truckers I guess that's the premise of the novel, but it's and it says it's it's a work of fiction, but everything about it is packaged as a mm-hmm. as a memoir by uh j t leroy and then um after that uh Laura Albert also published a series of short stories under the title the heart is deceitful above all things um uh under the name j t leroy uh but it would became more than just a pen name she would talk to people on the phone as this young by that point a young man mm-hmm. um and then she had her sister-in-law, um, dress up as JT Leroy. And so JT Leroy had a physical presence in the world, both uh, had a voice and a, and a face and, um, existed that way for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, became a figure of some note. Um, and, uh, to the point where even uh, J.T. LeRoy is credited as an associate producer on Gus Van Sant's Elephant,
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Um, because Laura Albert Albert under J.T. LeRoy wrote an early draft uh, of the screenplay, although apparently very little of what she wrote is actually mm-hmm. in the screenplay for Elephant. Um, and the movie sort of is sly, I think, and this is where I'm—I kind of cast a suspicious eye at the movie. In that it wants you to believe that a lot of the celebrities that rallied around JT really thought this was a real person, right? And not that they. Where, where I don't know that that's. I feel like there's something going on where that wasn't necessarily true. No. That most of these people are smart enough to know, like this is um, a pseudonym come to life. Uh, but I, where I, where I like the movie. Is because it speaks to something that I believe very strongly, uh, which is that a lot of people once, um, there, there were there in the, uh, uh eventually it was exposed that JT Leroy is not a real person that, mm-hmm. that Laura Albert was, um, behind this old time and that her sister-in-law was posing, whatever. Um, a lot of people treated it as like a scandal and a hoax. Mm. And here's the thing the point that the movie makes and exactly the point that I make about this sort of thing, that the things that Laura Albert wrote exist and people who read them and loved them and were moved by them still had all those emotions. Exactly. And this is why I said earlier that Oprah Winfrey would come up again because I'm an Oprah Winfrey fan, but I think the most shameful thing in her history is when she called James Fry or Frey or whatever on the carpet and made him apologize for making up parts of his memoir. And it's like, who gives a, f- a fuck
1: yeah. that he
0: made up anything? If you read the memoir, if you read a million little pieces, or whatever it was called, mm-hmm. and it moves you, then that's all you need to know. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit if it really happened or not? That has zero bearings on anything. This, and it, 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 like, I think Oprah Winfrey is the one who owes an apology to yeah. to us and to the people that she, uh, who's uh, the the. Um, what sort of the validity of their experiences yeah. with the book she called into question by making James Fry say that it wasn't real but it re- is real. The book is real.
1: Yeah, Who this, cares? This isn't Brian Williams. Right, yes. Uh, or, if you'll pardon me, Hillary Clinton, saying that she arrived uh, by plane and came under sniper fire, which never actually happened. Yeah. Um, or let's go ahead and say most of what Donald Trump has said, <laughs> um, just to be fair. Uh, okay. Yeah, this isn't a politician. It's not a journalist. These are, works, these are works of art. And I guess that's the thing, is when it's a memoir and the person is saying, like, no, this actually happened to me.
0: But she points out the book itself says it's fiction on it.
1: Uh, James Frey's. Oh, sorry. James. I, yeah, that's the one it. I'm talking about, sorry. which is like, I can understand it a little bit more there, but at the same time, I think you're right. There's an element of, and this is how I feel about, oddly enough, we were having this exact conversation in my class today. Um, that. About James Fry? Yeah. Frey? And oh. we were talking about author, the J.T. LeRoyce. No, that's not true. But we were talking about. But that
0: would make about, sense. I mean, you're. It would make sense. Film students, and it's a recent
1: film. Some recent. Just uh, because. it it was in my film criticism class and early film critics took issue when with movies that were based on true stories, but started to, but deviated quote unquote too much from these stories. And, you know, I see you shaking your head there.
0: Yeah. You and and I are on the same page about this.
1: Yeah. But the thing is like, that's what exactly what people said about, uh, saving Mr. Banks. um, they said that like oh the so and so it's like her story can't be reduced to this like oh i have no doubt that that can't well, be reduced see, to that see i when
0: i, I i'm going to play devil's advocate here because i think with saving mr banks it is it is different because it's not just that it changed facts mm-hmm. it's that it it represented the argument here is that it represented. Um, I already forget her name, <laughs> Peel Travers. Uh, okay. Um, it it represented her as something other than what she was and what she was very vocally. Mm-hmm. So it seems, I guess, um, it's, I guess, there's one thing about there's the there's license on one point, mm-hmm. but there's also what I think. The argument against Saving Mr. Banks is, is that it's disingenuous, uh, and so I think that's a different thing. I'm not saying that I I don't think Saving Mr. Banks is that good a movie, so I don't mm-hmm. um, have that I don't have a horse in this race right. really. But I think that is the difference there. I, like, there's a difference between license and willfully misrepresenting w- your subject
1: and here's the thing this is where this is actually what I wound up saying in class today is that there is a difference between as we all know from Indiana Jones there is a difference between fact and truth saving Mr. Banks I think is factually disingenuous but I think it is emotionally ingenuous that doesn't right. that doesn't work but okay. like I think emotionally they are trying to do something that is that is true Uh, and something. And so in that same way, if you watch saving Mr. Banks as I did and you felt something, you know, now I will say, uh, if I might get up on my own high horse, I am savvy enough to know that, well, obviously this is this is glossed over at the, at the very least, this is glossed over. Like I know that, but, uh, and so that I, I would not take this film as gospel at all. Uh, some people might, and that, that yeah. happens, but I still and, had an emotional reaction, and I think it's the one that they oh, wanted me to right. have.
0: And yes, I think that's perfectly valid. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the complaints about the film, actually, I think they can exist without invalidating that. Right. Because I think the complaints about the film are that it depicts, if not literally, it very strongly implies that Peel Travers came around on the movie, mm-hmm. which she is, she's... <laughs> on record for like decades yeah. after the fact yeah. that not, is not the case. She, this was, uh, uh, I, I guess when you're looking at this author and, and, uh, you're looking at the way that someone with the power and money of a Walt Disney, mm-hmm. uh, steamrolled her vision. Right. Um, saving Mr. Banks, whether it, you can still have your own reaction to it, mm-hmm.
1: but, um, it is in a way insult to injury, but that's the thing is what we're talking about, uh, is people thinking that as a work of art, not a documentary, Mm -hmm. but as a work of art, it is lessened because it is not representing real life or the true, the true story or the factual story, uh, as it should have, should have been. um, I would say now I'll stipulate that if this were my story and somebody represented me in a way that's like oh wow that's not me at all I my I might feel differently admittedly but uh, but in this case it's this is a fictional work that yes says that it's based on fact but it is a fictional work and as such I'm I'm okay with it I don't think someone's saying, well, that's not how it was in real life. I do not think that's actually a valid criticism. I can, I'm fine with somebody taking issue with that. Yeah, but I guess
0: this is this is the, that's the line I'm walking. Because I don't think there's anything wrong with your feelings or your interpretation of mm-hmm. Saving Mr. Banks. But I also totally agree that it is an in instant... Uh, a disrespectful instance of history being written by the victor. Sure. sure. Uh, and it's, um, at the very least upsetting that a large number of people will see the movie and assume mm-hmm. certain things about P.L. Travers that she would not have been happy with people thinking about her.
1: And it is interesting, actually the idea of history being written by the victor, because an argument could also be made that history w- in this case was written by everybody. Everybody loves Mary Poppins the movie,
0: except for P.L. Travers. Except for P.L. Travers, so this is that's Dis- fine. The Disney Corporation making yeah. a movie that makes it look like P.L. Travers
1: approves of their movie, right. which she didn't. Right, and it, but that's and that's the so thing that's, is that's what I'm talking about. They could. It, they're actually making her in some ways a more likable character. I guess they could have stuck with her being an asshole and been true to it. But I think she.
0: I feel like she had a right to be.
1: She absolutely asshole. had a right to be an asshole, but that's not a story worth telling. Sure, it is. Oh, I don't agree. I think that would be a fantastic story.
0: Well, okay. To hang tell on. the Peel Travers story as she would have liked to have it told, that would be very interesting.
1: Okay, I would find it interesting, but for what they were trying to do with that okay. film, you know, it would be a very different film. Yeah. It would be, you know, and one that I. It would be so different that it would just like it's like okay, there's this saving Mister Banks, and then there's this the PL Travers Walt Disney story, the right. you know the untitled like, Travers Travers. infamous, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually never saw Infamous. Uh, it's, I hear it's good. It, it's man, that's an interesting movie. Um, it's not, I think Capote is better, but there's a lot going on with infamous that I think is, is effective. We're way off topic. I'm yeah, sorry.
0: There's also, but there's also the issue of how much time has passed because I was weirdly thinking about the a similar thing with, um, the show Deadwood. Okay. <laughs> like almost all of those people are based on real people, Yeah, but there's no evidence that the real Eustace Bailey Farnum, which actually wasn't his first name. Anyway, the real yeah. Farnham was like a cowering piece of shit. Yeah. Like, I guess it's just it's so far and like in the past that there aren't there's no like clear hereditary line for people to say like hey my great great uh, grandfather yeah uh, whose name wasn't Eustace, but whose last name was Farnham wasn't like that yeah or Con Stapleton the like, <laughs> a character you don't even really remember but it was the real yeah. first sheriff of Deadwood uh, who the the show depicts is just. Uh, just trading on favors yeah. and being like an openly corrupt sheriff and an ineffectually corrupt sheriff.
1: I like the idea that the descendant of Farnham says, my grandfather wasn't like that. He was infinitely worse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, okay,
0: well, let's get back onto movies. Okay. Um Oh, it's your turn. Yeah. Okay. I forgot because yeah, that was, sorry. A, that was I author. did so oh, much yeah. talking. And the last thing I wanted to say about author was that this is from the director who made the devil versus Daniel Johnston. Oh, okay. Um, and in a way it's, I think it's tongue in cheek. This is called the JT Leroy story because the movie really is the Laura Albert story. And it really is mo- more than a document of the, this story in this quote unquote mm-hmm. hoax. It's more about an incredibly talented, but, um, most likely, you know, mentally ill. I don't know mentally. She seems okay now, mm-hmm. but clearly was working through, um, some problems and some trauma from her own childhood. Yeah. And, um, did it, uh, you know, this was the way that she was able to confront these things. Yeah. And so it's a picture of much like devil, Ver- the devil and Dana Johnston. It's a picture of art. And again, I don't want to use the term mental illness, but mental uh, psychological
1: scars and trauma. Yeah. 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 Um, Anyway. Which makes it, which, you know, all the more reason why it's frustrating that people were like outraged. And it's like, if this was the only way that she could find some level of comfort, and by the way, also provide comfort for other people, then who the hell are you to get mm-hmm. upset that she quote unquote misrepresented each other, uh, herself? And it's like, also, it's a pen name. Yeah. Now, admittedly, they do give JT Leroy more of a character. Yeah. But- yeah, J.T. Leroy came to life, but it's yeah.
0: still it's it's still a
1: J.T. A, Leroy is it is himself a work of art, yeah, in yeah. every capacity. Yeah. Um, okay, so continuing with the uh, the horror movie night that I had uh, with my friend Scott, we did uh, this is again an- another rewatch for me. Uh, Toby Hooper's the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the Texas Chain Saw Massacre, um, yeah. and uh, you know I don't. Uh, I don't have much to say that I won't say in a few days, um, <laughs> but uh, this, is, this is a real, uh, real mind bender over here. But, That's um, like Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children over here. Exactly, what kind of loop we're are gonna, we in now? We're
0: going to talk to our grandfathers on the phone.
1: Uh, but yeah, I mean, Texas Chainsaw is an absolute horror masterpiece, and and one thing that you and I are going to be talking about is. With, with, uh, the guest, um, is that it just bursts onto the scene mm-hmm. and I do, com- I, I compare it to something like night of the living dead where, and maybe this is the case with just any genre that you need. There are people that like see everything that came before and they think like, I can build on that. And then they make the best version of something. But it's definitely the like the the peak of something that was gradual. Okay, I see what you're and then there are some people that's like I got to do this, uh-huh. <laughs> and it comes out of nowhere, and people are like what? Where did this come from? I have no idea. And Night of Living Dead seems like that for me. Night
0: um, of Living Dead or Ch- Texas Chainsaw
1: Massacre? Night of Living Dead, and then Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, okay, yes. Like I, the two in my are, are very similar in my head. Uh, maybe because like you know they're both independent films that take place primarily around a farmhouse and all that sort of thing. And there's cannibalism involved. Um, but, uh, but just Toby Hooper and, and his, uh, co-writer and just everybody involved. It's just so fascinating that this film, you know, it's a phrase that I use a lot is that it just, it, it arrives like fully formed. um, and that nothing that you saw before that with the possible exception night of the living dead nothing that you saw before that could have prepared you for that film um i was watching the making of and i think they say that they that they're a a a film copy, uh, a, a reel of of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, is like on display in like the Museum of Modern Art or something like that. Uh, okay. I don't remember wh- uh, where, but um, and I don't know if that's still the case because it was a making of from several years ago. But uh, you know, it's just this uh, astonishing movie that that is in many ways the height of filmmaking. If you look at the way it is shot, if you look at the way that the, that music is used and, and I don't know, it's, it is, this is going to sound really pretentious. That film is pure cinema. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think that's pretentious. Okay. Um, Speaking of pure cinema,
0: I guess I saw an amazing film, a okay. film that I had, uh, been looking forward to ever since, uh, the rapturous reviews came out of, uh, can, it was a movie, do you remember back in August when, uh, I don't know what website it was, did like the hundred best films of the century so far.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> like yeah. a
0: Weird time to do it. Yeah. Um, and this movie, which had only premiered, you know, three months earlier or whatever, or five months or however long, I don't know. Um, three months. Um, uh, made the list. It's a German film directed by Marin Ade. It's called Tony Erdmann. Okay. Um, and I'm going to read the very briefly cause it's very brief. The IMDB plot description. Okay. A father tries to reconnect with his adult daughter. Hey, alright. That is absolutely the plot
1: of the movie. Okay. There's not I any mean, nothing disingenuous about it. makes about sense it. to me, David. It seems very straightforward, very <laughs> simple. Uh sounds like a really nice pared-down movie. It, so no, moving yeah, on, the next thing that I
0: saw so- what it probably doesn't tell you is that this movie is nearly three hours long. Oh. <laughs> um, and that it is it's it's, a, it, it's it's brilliantly felt, brilliantly performed by the the two leads are um, Peter Semenuszczyk, who plays uh, Winfried, a.k.a. Tony Erdman, and there's Sandra Huller, who plays Inez, his daughter. Um, It's beautifully performed by them, and it's very very heartfelt and emotional in the way they uh, attempt to reconnect, but it's also a movie that has a uh, nearly... It always feels like it's nearly going to go off the rails in its sense of anarchic glee. Like, in every situation, the movie the characters in the movie at times, um, but often the movie itself are testing the limits of this, of every social contract, mm-hmm. just constantly. The characters are putting themselves in social situations, um, be it at work or at a party or among families or among strangers or whatever. where at a restaurant wherever you're supposed to be. There are ways that you're supposed to act and they are testing the limits of how much they can get away with. It's mm-hmm. almost like a scripted, Art house jackass. It's not quite that you know extreme. They're not pulling mm-hmm. pranks, although maybe they are kind of pulling pranks. Um, it's uh, it, it's a it's a really bizarre movie that I I already feel like I've said too much because I was glad to know very little about it going in. So I won't tell you any more of the plot. I will just say when this movie comes out in December, um, absolutely set aside three hours of your day um, to go see it. You, um, you won't regret it and you will have the song, the greatest love of all stuck in your head for two weeks as I have.
1: <laughs> all right. Uh, speaking of songs that will get stuck in your head after watching a movie, uh, the third, uh, horror movie that I watched with my friend go. features the song looking for the magic, uh, by the Dwight Twilly band. Okay. Uh, this, the movie is called your next, Oh right! Uh, so this is a, uh, a rewatch, obviously directed by Adam Wingard. Um,
0: now, is your friend uh, Scott, whom I know very mm-hmm. well, of course, obviously. um is he a movie buff? He
1: is, but uh, yeah, I'd I'd say he is. I guess, my
0: question he is, has, he has a few like, blind spots, but well, yeah. My question is that people like us who you know uh, mm-hmm. eat, drink, breathe, sleep, live movies, we all know about about your next. We know right. it's a great movie, but I feel like it, it didn't quite break through, and so it's one of those movies that's a lot of fun to show to someone who doesn't know what to expect. Yes. Uh, Scott was someone who had already heard of this movie?
1: He had heard of it okay. because, unlike any of my other friends, he actually listens to this show. <laughs> um, I'm astonished that he does, but at the same time, he and I don't Talk very much, uh, and so this is how he can keep in touch with me. And once he starts a podcast, I can keep in touch with him in that way. Um, so he hasn't uh, started a podcast yet? What's he waiting? For? <laughs> You're not getting any younger. Um, <laughs> so uh, the uh, yeah, so he he'd heard about it uh, from us and, I, and probably from some other people as well. And so this is my I think fourth time watching it, hmm. and. Uh, you know, so much of of going back to school has uh, hasn't necessarily informed the way that I watch movies, but often the conversations that I'm having in class just kind of stay in my head, and then I'll go watch some movie that I find myself applying these things to. And so, um, in my film criticism class, we did a we had to write an analysis of uh, Night of the Hunter, mm. and one of the things that we were meant to talk about was the way the film blended different genres and so with that idea in my head i watch your next which has elements of slasher has elements of home invasion which mm-hmm. the two aren't always the same but like home invasion is its own genre yeah uh, or and, subgenre.
0: and it's weirdly it's often not my favorite horror genre um i can't stand the movie the strangers i know it, right uh, a lot of people like it uh, i've I find the movie repugnant. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, I was nervous going into your next.
1: Yeah. No. Well, and the first Purge is basically that. But then, of course, yeah. you and I are both big fans of funny games. Um, right. But that's a postmodern home invasion. Movie. Exactly. Uh, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and so but that's the thing is your next is also not necessarily postmodern, but because it's not only that Mm -hmm. and it has, and it has definite elements of slasher uh, with, you know, masked killers Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing uh, using bladed weapons and such. Uh, But then there's also uh, a lot of Agatha Christie in there. Right. Yeah. Uh, You know, and then there were none Um, on top of all that. It's funny. Not always funny. There are moments of genuine drama and genuine sadness and that kind of thing. But, uh, you, you blend all these together and it just makes for a movie that is tremendous fun.
0: Yeah. I feel it's, like yeah, it, it also has action elements. It's a rousing yeah. action. Oh, type absolutely. Of, yeah.
1: And there's, there is one moment, uh, that, that I have thought about, um, in the past, but in watch and, and was kind of looking for it this time where the film also has shifting perspective. Mm-hmm. And there's one scene that is so interesting where one of the attackers, one of the invaders, whatever you want to say, um, he's been injured mm-hmm. and he and some of the other attacker attackers are chasing after the protagonist and they all go running outside, but he's injured. So mm-hmm. he's behind a little bit. So by the time he makes it out of the house, all of the people, all of, all of his friends are gone and so he's left to kind of try to figure out well wait where might the protagonist be again this character has been predatory Mm -hmm. the whole film uh and his and is responsible for the deaths of many characters but suddenly things start to shift and he and everything about the the tone, the way it is shot, the way it is cut, this character is being framed as a full on victim now.
0: Yeah. He's vulnerable. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah. And so moments like that are fascinating and it's just such a, such a, not merely fun, but just such an energetic film with it. That is just so full of uh, just very vibrant and uh, not to mention wonderful performances all around, including and maybe especially Joe Swanberg (laughs) who. Is funny on so many levels, not the least of which is there there's a moment when he is explaining to Ty West mm-hmm. that to him the the height of the medium of filmmaking is commercials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to put those in Joe's those words in Joe Swanberg's mouth is particularly funny. Yeah. But then also his character Drake, who is just so arrogant and, <laughs> and superior to everybody. There comes a moment when sort of the, where, you know, obviously they're under attack and they're trying to figure out why their cell phones can't, won't work. And Felix, who's kind of the black sheep of the family, this is, a, this is a well-to-do family. And Felix, you can just tell by the way he carries himself. Like he kind of gave all this up and has gone to, he he he, he kind of enjoys slumming it and that sort of thing. And so there comes a moment when, uh, they're trying to figure out why can't, why don't our cell phones work? And then Felix says, he says like, it was, they probably have like one of those jammers. Like I saw it on, uh, I saw him online. They're, all, they're like 30 bucks. And then, Uh, Joe Swanberg, who by this point has been uh, shot with an arrow Uh in the the shoulder. And so he's been screaming out in pain, but he hears Felix say this and he and in the midst of this action, he goes, Felix, you fucking low life. (laughs) And it's so funny. (laughs) And I just like it's a marvelous performance. Uh, Everyone's great, but he really stands out to me.
0: Okay, Um, this one will take a second because it's not very good. I saw a documentary, another Netflix documentary called The Ivory Game, uh, produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. It's about uh, ivory and it's about elephant um, poaching Mm -hmm. and uh, rhinoceros um, poaching. And uh, it definitely is um, effective in getting across its uh, message of how big a problem this is and how much, um, uh, to some extent, the U.S., but mostly China, is Mm -hmm. supporting this with the... They, I knew it uh, with the ivory uh, trade, but it's just not a very well-made movie because it's trying too hard. It looks like a uh, espionage action type movie and they try way too hard to make the anti-poaching people look like they're real badasses. And it, it like it has the kind of like overhead helicopter shots of an SUV speeding through the desert, you know, mm-hmm. with like the kicking up, dirt is these guys are going to try and catch some poachers it's there's way too much of that kind of stuff and it just seems
1: it it cheapens it did you ever see that south park where they send up whale wars no check it out it's a lot of fun i don't know what whale wars is whale wars is uh i forget the name of the organization but uh greenpeace it's not greenpeace it's like this the idea it's like oh these guys these guys are like pirates you know they go Oh,
0: i know what organization you're talking about yeah
1: Sea shepherds. That sounds right. It's something like that, yeah. anyway. But whale wars, like it's framed in such a way, it's like these guys are going out and and, uh, and you know uh, confronting these Japanese whaling boats and that sort of thing. And it's and it really sets them up to be badasses. And they are if at most a minor nuisance. Um, <laughs> and so there's a wonderful South Park about that. Um, so uh, <laughs> I'm just remembering the episode now. Uh, okay. So, lastly, for me, oh,
0: okay, is, is, is,
1: is that true? Hang on, lastly, uh, okay. Oh no, sorry. Second to last, okay, pardon me. I did me. Do the math right. All right. Um, I saw for the first time Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo. I've never seen it. You would love it. Most people would love it. Not unlike your next, The Purple Rose of Cairo, is a an intensely lovable movie um, that I can't I can't imagine anybody not liking it's just such a neat idea where
0: jeff daniels comes out of the movie like in last action hero
1: exactly and it's (laughs) it's weird how much it felt like there should be a lawsuit because he really kills a lot of people (laughs) um but uh yeah he just what i had heard about was that oh he comes out of the movie to To be with Mia Farrow's character, who has seen the film several times, and and the two of them are are interacting, and and that's really fun because the character is always talking about himself in regards to being a character, you know, cause, and he knows he's in a, he's in a movie, and so he talks about he tells this story about his dad. and He goes, "My dad was a really ca- was a real card. I, I never met him because he died before the movie started, you know, and <laughs> stuff like that is is, is great. Um, but what I didn't realize is that uh, there are, you know, executives uh, like studio executives who are scrambling around because like the movie theater owner and the movie theater patrons are like, uh, Hey, what are we supposed to do? this, this guy just came out of the movie, and so like the, the head of the studio is trying to figure out what to do. Is like, can we sue somebody? What, do, what, what can we do? Um, and then the other so, character— Did he only exit that print, or is he not in any of the prints? He exited anymore? that print, but now there's something about that character that uh, other— I forget what the character's name is. Uh, Jeff Daniels. No, that's—no, David, that's—he's <laughs> an actor. All right. It's very confusing.
0: Uh, It's like, it's like a Miss Peregrine
1: situation. (laughs) It's uh, it's like, uh, I think it's Tom Baxter. So I think, so the character of Tom Baxter in this, he gets off the screen, but in like other screens, he's trying to get off the screen. So there's something about this character specifically (laughs) that just wants to leave. Um, but anyway, you come in and all the other characters, like the camera is locked in that one shot and all the other characters are just sitting around being like, well, I don't know what to do. Like, we can't keep the story going. Uh And so they're just sitting and they're like starving because in the next scene they were going to go out to eat (laughs) and and it's, and it's hilarious. And, and now what about, okay. Okay. Jeff Daniels,
0: he plays Mm -hmm. the character, but in theory, if this is a movie that exists, Jeff Daniels also plays the actor who plays the
1: character. He also shows up. Okay. Yeah. I was Uh, curious. And, and so it's, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot of layers, a lot of comedy What I like about it is that Woody Allen really seems to take this comedic premise and approach from every possible angle um, to the point where I I can't think of anything that he could have done short of being uh, like 100% madcap, Uh uh, you know, short of that, like at the end of Blazing Saddles or something like that. Uh, Short of that, I can't think of anything else he would do. It's just a remarkably fun movie and uh and in, insanely well written and very witty and i highly recommend it
0: all right um i saw another documentary this is one i was very excited to see one that came up again in our uh directors who can do both episode um i saw jim jarmusch's gimme danger oh okay. which is the documentary now i think a couple two three weeks ago whenever we did that episode i referred to this because i hadn't seen it at the time and didn't know much about it i referred to it as a documentary about iggy pop right i was incorrect it is a documentary about the Stooges. Okay. It is very specifically about the Stooges, so much so that even though Iggy Pop is the main person being interviewed throughout um, because he's one of the very few surviving Stooges, um, in fact, there are two members of the Stooges who died between, like, who's, there's, like, the RIP and the end credits. They Like, oh, wow. they're interviewed in the movie and have died since then. Um, but even though he's the main guy, it's just about the Stooges, meaning there's, like, a... There's like a 35 year gap in the movie that where we there's like there's almost nothing about his solo career. There's no lust for life. There's no living in Berlin for two years. There's no acting career. It goes from essentially goes from the Stooges breaking up in 1974 or whatever to their reunion in 2003. I mean, it, it covers that ground. In fact, actually, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie, the way that it covers the ground. Jim Jarmusch does something very, that doesn't take very long and is very simple but very effective is that he shows concert and television performance footage covering those years of other bands covering Stooges songs Mm. as a way of like saying, yes, they were gone for 35 years, but their influence grew over this. time. So you're seeing everyone from the damned and the sex pistols to sonic youth, to you know, whoever
1: um, they're gone, but they're ever present.
0: Uh, yeah. and, And in fact are, are growing, you know, they put out these three albums in a fairly short period of time and burned out as a band. Um, yeah, from, it was 67 to 74. They burned out after their third album. Um, And then it wasn't until 2003 that they um, came together again. Uh, So it's, I would say it's a very, it's a solid movie. I would, I will say this though, as a Jim Jarmusch fan, I was expecting something a little more unconventional. And this Mm. movie as, as enjoyable as it is, um, it almost couldn't be more conventional as a, as a sort of just standard rock doc. Yeah. Um, it will definitely tell you the story of the Stooges and give you an appreciation, um, of their music and their influence, uh, and their power. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is surprisingly conventional for a Jim Jarmusch movie. Hmm. We're seeing, I'm a Stooges fan and I, tend to i've talked about in the podcast before how i tend to be skeptical of documentaries about bands that i'm already a fan of yeah because i feel like yeah i get it I, I could just listen to their music for two hours and have a better time this this was a an enjoyable uh time it passed that test it did it, it uh yeah passed that bar
1: i okay. guess what's next for you all right last one okay actual last one for me um is a rewatch so I'll, get, I'll provide a little bit of context because this is fascinating to me. Uh, so I'm enrolled in a, uh, in a TA training class where I learn how to be a uh, teaching assistant. And so part of that means going to an undergrad lecture Uh-oh. and then going to uh, the, the accompanying mm-hmm. section. Now, we didn't really have that structure uh, at Columbia. No. We had TAs, but it was a very different role. Um, Yeah,
0: from what I know from regular
1: TAs, it's mostly about sleeping with the female student, undergrad students, right? Yeah, we're covering that week seven. Okay. Um, And so uh, right now it's just about like leering at them. (laughs) Um, So so I went to this. (laughs) So uh, here's the deal. The whole reason that I'm going back to school is so that I can get my master's and pursue teaching work. Uh, at a, I've talked to a number of schools that are very open to having me teach for them. Uh, and it's not like they're keeping a spot open. The spot just is going to be open for okay. a while. Uh, but I need my master's. And so that's why I'm doing this. Uh, but in taking the classes that I've been taking, I find myself thinking like, man, I don't know, man, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm teacher, teacher material. I'm taking, I'm taking master's classes. I go to this undergrad class. No problem. I could have stepped in that day. Um, because it was a film genres class and the, and the teacher was fine. I don't mean to imply that she, she did a bad job, but just the nature of it was 30 minutes of talking followed by watching no country for old men. That was it. Whereas like, in my master's classes, it's okay, we might we like we will have a screening, then we will have four hours of talking. Mm-hmm. Or you gotta go see this on your own, and then we will, you know, and then we'll talk. Um whereas this, it's like a good portion of it, as it was when we were in school, a good portion of these classes are watching the film. Yeah. And so honestly, I was gonna go in and be like, Well, I just need to get a an idea of these Classes and then I'm gonna duck out early. Well, then they start watching No Country for Old yeah, Men. I was sure. like, well, I guess I'm staying the whole time. <laughs> so yeah, uh, much to my surprise, I wound up watching No Country for Old Men. Um and uh Yeah, uh, it hasn't gotten uh worse. Uh no, it's it's boy, it's such a marvelous movie and just structurally so fascinating. And what was something that was in my head about it is uh, you know, I listen to certain political commentators, and hearing them talk about uh, film is very interesting because, you know, as they say, everybody's a critic, except not everybody is. You and I are semi-professionally, okay. Um, but, but they they, I remember this one guy was talking about No Country for Old Men as being like this really great, effective crime story. And then and then and then like and then the main character dies off screen and then they just keep it going for like twenty more minutes and it's like and just I don't know it just gets really self indulgent I'm like imbecile (laughs) imbecile I I get so angry when I hear that Um, because like here's an idea and this is the difference between you and me and and other people is rather than focus on hey I'm bored. Rather than focus on, hey, the crime story is done. Why are we still watching a movie? In fact, actually, let's focus on that question Why are you still watching a movie? Uh-huh. Why do you think you're being shown this stuff? Why do you think this scene between Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Barry, I think his name is Barry Corbin, uh, the, the older gentleman in the wheelchair, Barry like Corbin, yeah. why, why are you watching that scene? Why was it included rather than focus on like, well, uh, Llewellyn Moss is dead and uh, you know, Anton Chigurh has gone. So clearly in, in, what's the point?
0: In this guy's point of view, the Coens forgot to stop the movie yeah. <laughs> for 20 minutes. And they went, Oh yeah.
1: uh, they, they merely see oh, you it your as, characters are still here. Yeah. <laughs> oh shit. I I went out and got a sandwich. Uh, and it turns out, uh, the composer <laughs> uh, editor and, and, uh, cameraman are still here. Um, yeah, no, it's to them. It's just pure self-indulgence. And that's the thing. They see it as this is a crime story, the end. And while it definitely does have that, um, it's just, it's Cormac McCarthy. It's the Coen brothers. Like they're not going to be hemmed in by one specific genre or a specific or a specific character. They're telling a larger story. They're dealing they're they're dealing in theme as illustrated by these stories and by these images. And it's just And the idea of a character dying off-screen. I can't think of anything more fatalistic than that. Yeah. And dying not but, by Anton Chigurh's hands.
0: Yeah. Also, I you and I are often often discuss who is the actual protagonist of any given sure. movie, and Llewellyn Moss is not to me not the main character of the movie. Tommy Lee Jones' character, is the I, main I character agree. The movie. Yeah. the movie starts with his voiceover, yeah, and ends with his voice,
1: yeah. And I mean, I would say they are they're essentially co leads, but at the same time, if you want to think in terms of an arc, mm-hmm. well, Anton Chigurh is insane, and thus he can't have an arc. Uh, Llewellyn Moss doesn't really have much of an arc, but ed tom bell absolutely does yeah you know by the end and and it's a sad arc yeah it's an arc of when you want to look if you want to look at it it's like okay well why are we following these last 20 minutes even though the story is over it's like because we're watching this is reductive but if you want to look at it purely from character a character standpoint Mm -hmm. we are watching the case that pushed ed tom bell over the edge and he retired Right. the 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 case that helped him for made him realize there's not a lot of sense in this world, and there's really nothing I can do to fight it. I thought I could, and I was for a little while, but there's only so much I can do. So I'm just gonna duck out. Um, But even then, with that with that monologue at the end about his dream Mm -hmm. and his father going on ahead of him and having this light, and that he would be there waiting for it. Like I almost get choked up when I think about it, partially for father issues, but like when I think about that. There's even just a little, even in the midst of this incredibly cynical, fatalistic film, there's a glimmer of hope there at the end. And then smash cut to black, movie's over. How anyone could see this as just just a regular old crime story, plus 20 minutes, is, is infuriating to me. It is one of the most engaging movies I've ever seen, and it is uh, an absolute masterpiece. I do think it's a perfect film.
0: Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Uh these are the people you got to win over though. You can't, you I'm can't working on not you it. can't call them imbeciles. You got to hearts and
1: minds. I don't call Heart, them imbeciles. Hearts and minds. Instead you just did twice. And I don't say fervor. it. I don't say it to th- that's true. I <laughs> uh, I wanted to sell it. Uh, I don't say it to their faces, but it is one of those things where it's just like I am trying. Listeners might know this that I'm slowly but surely trying to get my hooks into the uh, world of conservative commentary. Not that I want to do it, but that I'm slowly but surely getting to know people within that world, mm-hmm. including some of the people that I'm talking about. Um, those imbeciles these fucking imbeciles, <laughs> uh, man, I was, damn it. I was trying not to swear this, this episode, but, um, why? Cause I've been swearing a lot lately. Okay, Like I, I really wanted to push, uh, our like 500 episodes, uh, out on like my Facebook page uh-huh. and I can't, uh, cause I don't want my mom listening.
0: Oh, I see.
1: Stuff like that. So, um, but yeah, uh, and I'm sorry to frame it only in, ter- in, in these terms, but I couldn't help but, th- as I was watching it, like this idea was ringing in my head of like, because as I'm watching, all I'm thinking is, this is astounding, how could anybody think it isn't? And then I thought, oh wait, no, they do think it is. But then at th- from this point onward, they're, they're not on board. And to me, that last 20 minutes, everything up until then is great. But th- that last 20 minutes is what makes this film so fascinating and so Mm -hmm. I don't know so insightful about human nature and about the way the world works and I don't know it's uh imbeciles
0: (laughs) yeah these imbeciles all right well save some energy because my next uh the next movie on my list is one that you've seen okay it's called Zootopia oh yes Um, oh boy and I thought it was terrific uh and I couldn't help but compare it to the Secret Life of Pets. Which okay. a movie I saw earlier this year and um, found uh, completely uh, shrill and exhausting and mm-hmm. I uh, would never watch it again. Um, and this is a movie that has some similarities in that it's about anthropomorph- anthropomorphic animals um, living in a world of their own. Uh, but th- this is a real movie. It's not, unlike Secret Life of Pets, which is just... It's a premise? It's just 90 minutes of shouting and coming up with every, like, uh, you know, lowest common denominator, kid pleasing bullshit yeah. in the world. Uh, Zootopia is a real story with real characters, and it has texture and it takes its time. and, yeah. and it has uh fantastic setting and settings and world building, which is not a I, I, always, I always say that term kind of disdainfully because I'm not a uh, it works about it, but it's yeah. uh, uh it's a really enjoyable movie. Um, but I want to get into because I think you and I have. S- I don't know if we have a difference of agreement about the movie's themes. I think
1: we're both on board with the themes, but you found I don't know if we're on board with the themes. Oh, okay. And actually I'm I'm for reasons I won't get into, I'm not even super comfortable saying what I think the themes are.
0: Well, I see the themes as being about how everyone makes assumptions about other groups of people than themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, even when you're trying not to, you probably do. So you should probably, uh, examine yourself and try to be, uh, less judgmental because the movie sets up like a kind of familiar premise where it's like, uh, this person's a bunny and no bunny has ever been a cop. And so, and we're always told, bunnies can't be cops and so it becomes it's it seems like a very simple Mm -hmm. or at least familiar thing of like she's going to overcome this whole world telling her um that she can't be what she wants to be and we've seen that story a million times right but then what's great about the movie is it's um uh, i'm not sure what the story structure um uh term is for this but there's a part where everything falls apart and everyone has to like Mm -hmm. reset for a while before coming back for the actual climax, you know, the inciting incident of of that is her turning around and making assumptions and saying things that are hurtful without meaning to, but falling back on stereotypes and prejudices that she maybe, maybe doesn't even realize that she has. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I took to be the theme is that we're all capable of judgment and stereotyping we're probably doing it all the time and um we should be more aware
1: okay you and you and i actually are uh uh, in lockstep on that as far as interpretation of the theme okay uh where i have certain issues and what i won't talk about is what i think culturally brought on a movie with that theme um Hmm just because and the reason that i'm not comfortable is because i haven't seen the movie in a while so i don't want to get so i can't give specifics um and so i I think what's great about the movie is that i'm sure there are things that
0: um uh that that inspired it but i feel like the movie goes out of its way to not be specific to not ever have one-to-one mapping metaphors where it's like this type of animal represents this type of person or segment of the population in the real world. I think it, it, I think the movie takes pains not to be
1: that simplistic. It is a, it is an evergreen theme, uh, that I think you can, you can pick this movie up in a few years and it might put you in mind of a different sociopolitical situation. Um, so here's the thing. So, uh, what bothers me is you're talking about the, the, like the second act crisis. Okay. Um, And as often happens in every genre with the second act crisis, um, in this film, and by the way, this is a film. You're totally right about the world building. I got a gr- first off, the film is gorgeous, uh-huh, especially yeah. when they're in the rainforest. But all around, it's gorgeous, and they they build the w- the world so precisely that I was actually there's, I have to assume there's going to be a sequel and I'm excited to see it because there's so much more to explore in this world, which is exciting to me. So, you know, when a film gets me excited for a sequel, yeah, that's which, rare. That's very rare. Yeah. Uh, and so, and I liked a lot of the voice acting. I liked a lot of the character designs. Um, And, and I thought the story was interesting. I liked that there's like a mystery element to it. Uh, And, I I understand why they led with this uh, in the advertising. That sloth scene is hard to beat (laughs) (laughs) as far as comedy. I mean, I thought it was hilarious. Um, And so, but no, in that third act crisis, I think this is, and this is a thing that happens in tons of movies. I'm very familiar with it because of like, you know, Christian film that's their bread and butter is like, I think in that moment it leads with its theme for the crisis, it leads with its theme and actually has characters behave in a way that if a character does something that contradicts who they are, that's fine. We all have those moments, but it, it had two characters contradict what they do and who they are, and, and I, they I, did it so that uh, so that this theme could be better expressed.
0: And I, I and I and I disagree uh, about that because I think. We can't just think I'm assuming you're talking about Judy and Nick, yes, I think with for the theme for the film's themes to work, we can't just think of them as Judy and Nick who have become friends over the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. We have to think about the lifetime experience of experiences they've had leading up to the movie, right, and the statements that Judy makes, which are hurtful, she makes um, based on uh deep seated assumptions that she probably hasn't examined mm-hmm. and the way that Nick reacts to those statements, um, is also based on a lifetime of assumptions being made about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and people who look like him or have his, or are foxes, I guess is what sure. <laughs> I'm trying to be more metaphorical. Or just, or just meat
1: foxes. eaters, predators, carnivores. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, although it does seem like foxes are particularly, I yeah. guess for
1: the for the movie they are. They're seen um, as like more sly and
0: yeah, all that. Um, and so I think the way uh, I think that it fits the film's themes that yes, if you're just t- talking, I see what you're saying. If you're just talking about these these characters from the time that we've met them to the present, Mm. it does seem like don't they know each other well enough by now to have more nuanced reactions. But I think the movie is encouraging us to think about their lifetime of experiences leading up to that, all the things that we haven't seen uh, and that they're reacting to one another. They're retreating into their, um, uh, I guess, cultural programming or whatever Mm. it is.
1: And I think that I can understand if it had happened in an argument. Uh, because Judy is uh, gives a shit about spoilers in this, in this <laughs> case, because she's giving a press conference and it's clear she's being pressed. It's clear that she's struggling to find something to say and that what she's saying is something that she re- that she repeated. Um, if, it, if, you know, if this were a situation where the two of them are getting in an argument and then she says this, in a- and she says something in anger and it sort of implies that oh this is what's really underneath mm-hmm. oh I see what you're saying then his anger and his hurt would make so much more sense as if as if, like oh is this how you really think of me but because of the context it's clear she's under pressure and she's just
0: and she is fumbling. repeating something we yeah. know that she's heard yeah. before I and, see and what she's you're
1: fumbling for something to say it feels honestly like he would be way more forgiving of her, but the themes need him not to be. And so it is not that they have a romance, but it's the kind no, of, thank God. it's the, yeah, it's the species sh- shouldn't mix. That's, that's <laughs> what you're saying. That's not what I mean. Um, the, yeah uh, <laughs> but it's, it's the kind of second act crisis of mis of, of misunderstanding and people suddenly being harsher on each other than I have any reason to believe they would be because the movie needs them to do that. And, I, I, but because of the context of that press conference, I don't believe it.
0: Uh, I see what you're saying because I've had that exact problem with many, many, many movies uh, in in the past. Um, but I uh, I felt, for the reasons that I've already stated, I felt that it uh,
1: it was in keeping with the movie that I was watching up to that point. They definitely did a good job of setting up the the history not merely individually but collectively that these characters uh, carry with them and so and which is why i think you have definitely a good argument but again if it if they if they had just had it come out in a different way yeah i see what you're saying then i'm i'm way more
0: on board. you haven't turned me around in the movie at all but i do see what you're saying
1: right and i will say that a lot of my issues with the movie have dropped off since i saw it and the stuff that i really love about it has really remained in my mind.
0: Uh, all right. A couple more for me. Um, I saw a terrific coming of age comedy, um, which those are hit and miss, okay. you know, because it's such a, it's such a go to sub genre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's every, every bad, like indie dramedy is some sort of coming of age comedy. And so I was, uh, prepared to, um, not be into this movie. It's called the edge of 17. Uh, it's it been around
1: a while, right? That movie.
0: Um, this is not the 1998 or 1999 gay. Kid okay, that's what I was period piece of. coming of yeah. age movie Edge of Seventeen, which is also uh, a very good movie. That one's called, if I'm correct, I think that one is called Edge of Seventeen. This one is called The Edge of Seventeen. <laughs> oh, okay, all right.
1: Um, and this it's like is, Birth oh, of a Nation. This is a response to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, definitely do check out the 1999 uh, Edge of Seventeen. That's a good movie. Um, no, this is uh, uh, Haley Steinfeld um, mm. stars as a girl who, like like most, I guess, teen uh, comedy characters, is kind of a misfit, kind of an outcast, kind of a John Hughes type. Although the movie takes place in modern day, um, who has exactly one friend in the world she has uh, her. She was close to her father growing up. He died when she was 13. Um, Her older brother is a super popular jock kid and um, her mother has never really been much of a mother since the dad died Mm -hmm. and uh, pretty clearly shows her favoritism for her brother Um, played by um, what's his name. I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he was also the star of uh, everybody wants some and he was on Glee. Mm. I'm trying to, I can picture anyway Um, and the mother is Kira Sedgwick. Um, and Haley Steinfeld has one friend in the world. And then, uh, one night while her mom, the mom is out of town. Um, she and Haley Steinfeld and her friend played by Haley, Haley Lou Richardson, um, are hanging out and getting drunk at the house and her, the older brother is hanging out with his friends and getting drunk. And, um, uh, everyone either passes out or goes home and Haley Steinfeld's friend ends up hooking up with Haley Steinfeld's brother. Hmm. And, um, this is very hurtful. And they end up actually it ends up not being a one time thing. They end up starting a relationship and this sends Haley Steinfeld's character into a bit of a tailspin. And so the movie yeah. is essentially it covers two or three weeks of like just pure unbridled. I don't know what to do with myself. Teen angst. Um, but it does it in a very heartfelt and honest and very funny way. Um, and uh, the performances—I named a bunch of actors already, uh, including the guy whose name I am forgetting um, from Glee, and everybody wants them. Uh, but the—and they're all terrific. All the performers are terrific. But the—the the secret weapon, the MVP here, is um, Haley Steinfeld's English teacher, played by Woody Harrelson. Hey, all right, this is—I mean, I'm a huge Woody Harrelson fan, and this is as good a supporting performance as he's given in quite some time even and i like him as like haymitch in the hunger games movies and stuff Mm -hmm. like that but um he is so terrific and so natural and so funny but also honest and real it's an awesome if if this type of movie uh were an awards type of movie which it's i think a little too teen centered um to be considered unfortunately um this would be a uh, contender for supporting, uh, actor, mm-hmm. um, this, this performance. So, um, I don't want to say much more except that I'm just really happy this movie exists. Uh, and people should check it out. It's called the edge of 17. I need to take a drink of water. Okay. Um, so, uh, but you don't have another movie to talk about right now. Do you have any vamping to do while I take a drink of water?
1: So the other day I was watching this presidential debate and I got to tell you,
0: Oh, we'll come back to that. Okay. I'm going to talk about one more movie before we move on to TV uh and man, I am over the moon about this movie. Um, which apparently our friend, friend of the show, Josh Long actually worked on in some capacity. Oh, okay. It's a movie called The Love Witch. Oh, okay. Um, and here's what I'm gonna say right off the bat. I went to a press screening, and the movie, which was shot on 35mm, was projected on 35mm, and you know me. You know I'm not like a purist. I'm not right. one of those uh just, you know, elitist, you know pedants uh about the sort of thing i can't stand those people generally but i'm going to tell you see the love witch on 35 millimeter mm-hmm. it's absolutely essential to the experience here uh because what this movie is it's not a it's not a parody it is a an homage to like early 70s sexploitation cinema fantastic euro horror you know art horror Mm -hmm. sex movies um and it's it's so perfect in every way that even its anachronisms are all intentional like it technically takes place in the modern day but all of the costume and set design looks like the early 70s but then people drive like new cars and talk on cell phones yeah but everything about every set every bit of hair and makeup and costume design every shot choice every lens every color is so note perfect if you have watched enough of these type of movies like um like the blood spattered bride or something like that um that it's uh it's it's astounding on its own just as as that sort of formal exercise it's an astounding achievement beyond that it's actually a really good movie Mm -hmm. that's um it's sort of it's a conversation it's very uh, sometimes winking and sometimes very earnestly connecting dots between the feminism of the early 70s and the third or whatever wave feminism we're on uh, we're in the middle of now and illustrating how um in a, in a very uh sympathetic way illustrating how the Gains made by feminism are all uh, are, are are positive, but it means that there's a constant ongoing reevaluation and renegotiating of what we expect heterosexual love and romance to look like mm. in the face of, uh, you know, the changing gender roles. Yeah. Um, and it's so smart uh, that it's able to do this so honestly and without being disingenuous, ever being insulting um, and also is a fun and funny time at the movies with, you know, plenty of sex and, uh, bright red stage blood that yeah. you would find in these kind of movies. Uh, it's really, really terrific. Uh, hmm. it's, uh, I know it's playing, it's opening here in Los Angeles at the new art in two or three weeks. Um, and it's playing a few other theaters. I'm uh, sure that it will travel around the country. Um, but this is one that I'm, you know, I'm always an advocate of, you know, you don't have to go show out the money you can wait for on demand or whatever. Um, I know that movies cost money, but uh, this is one it's worth going to see in the theater because it is that kind of experience. You know, I saw the movie and then I when I, I rushed home last night, and I couldn't wait to show my wife the trailer. Mm-hmm. I showed her the trailer, but I was like, this is not the movie that I just saw. Like the yeah. trailer's still good, but I was like, this doesn't look right. It was so perfect when I saw it on film. Um, yeah, definitely check out the love, Witch. all right, let's talk about TV. You go first because I have been talking way too much. Uh,
1: so I have, uh, I wrote down that I only had two, but actually I will add a third. Um, I'm going to add a third too. Okay. So I've watched almost all, I'm 20 minutes shy of watching all of Luke Cage, um, on Netflix. And. I I, I, I will just, this repeat. This is the new uh, Mahershala
0: Ali vehicle. Uh,
1: yes, for a while. Spoil- <laughs> oh. Spoilers, um, but uh, yeah, I will repeat that. Mar- what Marvel is doing on TV and specifically Netflix is so fascinating because they did. You know, they made Daredevil. They've made Jessica Jones, and now Luke Cage. And they've they've released a. a, a a trailer for Iron Fist, which will be coming in the, in the spring. Um, you know, uh, as they've, as they've sort of been doing with the movies where, you know, uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier is supposed to be like a seventies espionage film and Ant-Man is supposed to be a heist film. Um, but with those, again, they still need to try to maintain a, a consistent visual fabric. Whereas the Netflix shows, yes, they all do sort of look, the same, but th- they look the same in their in their compelling visuals, not in their blandness mm-hmm. um, and and they they are each different. Uh, different genres of, of TV show. Daredevil is, yes, an action, certainly like a like an action series, but also with a fair amount of legal proceedings. And then Jessica Jones is sort of, is, again, these are all very action-based, but Jessica Jones also has elements of being a private detective. And then Luke Cage has a lot of elements of 70s black exploitation films. And I would say a heavy influence of uh, Elmore Leonard. Um, with its choice with with its use of of music um this is okay so this is going to be weird for a 34-year-old white guy to say but a big element of like you know the the black exploitation movies of the 70s uh you know we say black exploitation as though it were people exploiting black performers uh-huh. and black audiences, but by and large, you know, like "Sweet Sweetback's Badass" song, like these were movies made by black people for black people, mm-hmm. and they they incorporated things that that their audience wanted to see, and this definitely has that vibe. You know, it has uh, a good a good amount of the action takes place in like this in this. Uh, upscale club musical club in harlem and so they won't so they'll show like musical performances now they won't show the entire performance or even one whole song but they will cut to these you know the delphonics show up uh at some point um and and other bands that i would that i'm sure i i I would know if i were into more modern like (laughs) r&b um but just like and and as i watch that i just think like my first thought is that's an interesting choice to include that, and then I thought like maybe I'm not. I mean, obviously it's it's a Netflix show and it's Marvel based, so they want to welcome in everybody they can. But you know, I did have the thoughts like maybe this choice isn't for me. Maybe this choice is to cater to uh, a, a predominantly black audience, uh, just as they did uh, in the '70s. And that idea is so exciting to me. And, and so much of what the, this, this show more so than Jessica Jones, which admittedly did deal with, so, with a, a number of like, I'd say women's issues, like what constitutes rape, stuff like that. Um, this show definitely seems to be engaging with like issues in the urban black community. Um, and Toying with this idea of you know who's to blame—is it society? Is it the individual? Probably a combination of both, um, and that the same—and pe- that in some cases the same people that are like railing against society, uh, keeping black people down, are also profiting off of that system. Um, and it's just such a—it's so fascinating. Now, I will say that it starts to, in the last few episodes, it does start to kind of take a downturn as a very specific plot development starts to be played up and it just seems a little bit soap opera ish, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it's got a great cast, including the wonderful, uh, Alfre Woodard, who, you know, gets the, the uh, biggest role I've seen of hers in quite a while and, and does great stuff with it. Um, so it's, uh, it's, I was very, I'm very glad to, to have watched it. And again, like, when you watch the two scenes of Daredevil and Jessica Jones and now Luke Cage and once you see Iron Fist and seeing all of these together, I feel like I don't know it's you know maybe t v serialized TV does lend itself more to comic book adaptation.
0: Let me ask you this okay to get off uh, off off this show in sp- in particular in general so you like these uh the Netflix
1: Marvel shows yeah, I don't love Jessica Jones, but there are there are a lot of elements to it that I do like
0: um and then there's uh Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, these...
1: Yeah, which I haven't seen.
0: These shows, but they take place in the same universe as the Marvel movies. Yes. Whereas the DC shows, Flash, Arrow, Supergirl, yeah. they all take place in their own universe, but they're not the same as the as the movie yes. universe. Are you, as a fan of the X-Men films, looking forward to Legion on FX?
1: Is Legion... Is that... From
0: what I understand, it does take place in the same universe okay. as the films, I think. Well, yeah, listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but that was my understanding is that it's
1: the mutant I, legion and they can actually call him a mutant okay. uh, because it's Fox. Right. right. Um, um, I, ne- having just heard about that, I don't care. Here's why. Because the X-Men universe has changed so much since the initial creation of it. You know, like okay. if Legion, if Legion is going to interact with Magneto, which one will it be? Um, you know the, in in uh x-men first class and then days of future pass and then uh, apocalypse like 20 years has gone by in those movies and yet the characters don't age and some people are like that's ridiculous and i just see it as Sweet, it's the the, it's the simpsons it's the simpsons it's it's family guy it's the characters are always this age and they're always going to look the same the only character that ever ages that they only that they ever allow to age is wolverine which is ironic because he's the one that doesn't age. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so the, uh, the idea of a shared X-Men universe would mean more if it were more consistent.
0: But the comics aren't, like, when you read the comics, you know, Jubilee is always the same age or whatever, you know? Like, that's just right. the way... I guess that's the way superhero comic book storytelling
1: works, right? But that's and that's what I mean is like if if there were only one Magneto, it would mean more. If there were only one actor to ever play okay, uh, Cyclops, that would mean more. Um, as it is, aside from you know the character of, of Rhodes, who was first played by Terrence Howard and now Don Cheadle. Um, oh, back to Marvel. Okay, back to back to Marvel. Like this. Again, it comes to the way the Marvel Universe cinematic Universe has been conceived where everything does feed into itself um, and while i don't think we 're ever going to see you know the Hulk or Thor show up in these uh, Netflix shows it 's feasible that they could and they always and people are always making reference to the incident uh, is is what they call like the 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 battle of new york um and it's just so fascinating and the idea that it looms large over their lives like when we're dealing with cops there's like they're in the midst of an existential crisis where there's like what good are we anymore <laughs> you know and that's fascinating because it it takes it literally takes so much of of people's complaints about man of steel or the avengers which is yeah, there these cosmic beings are having this fight, but what about regular people? Well, in Netflix, we are seeing the regular people, and some of them do get superpowers, but we're still seeing, you know, all the villains in Luke Cage. Oh, well, in fact, everybody except Luke Cage are just regular people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's I'm I'm so impressed with what they're doing. As 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 bored as I'm starting to get with the Marvel films, although I'm actually quite excited for uh, Doctor Strange. Um, which by the way it's going to take all my effort to not say love at the end of that. <laughs> uh, but um as bored as I'm getting with the movies, the TV uh is continuing to excite me. I can't wait for Iron Fist in the in the spring.
0: All right, um I'm uh, I started watching uh, an exciting new series that debuted a few weeks ago over on HBO um and of course I'm talking about Insecure. <laughs> um i haven't watched the westworld yet i will um but uh no i, I only watched the first episode of uh, insecure um and it's uh i'm i'm sure eventually it will play itself out uh and i'll start to get annoyed but these essentially a tourist dramedy sitcom like uh, very personalized dramedy sitcoms like Atlanta, Atlanta, um, Louie, of course, there's better things I haven't watched yet is the, um, Pamela Adlon one over mm-hmm. on FX, uh, and insecure is Issa Rae's, um, master of Her, none is another one. Master of none. Yes. Uh, I'm such, I'm, I'm so glad these uh, exist as a, as an auteurist and as a comedy fan, they're, uh, you know, uh, manna from heaven. Uh, as the saying goes, um and yeah, insecure is a very um you know i I guess it's because the reason I like these it 's because something that we and i you and I always talk about is the idea that the more specific something is, the more universal it feels because mm-hmm. everyone has specific experiences, yeah, um and so we get this very specific look at someone living in like southeast um, South, Southeast, uh, Los Angeles, you know, Inglewood in that area. Um, and, uh, it's, it's a look at that's, it's the city that I know and have lived in for over 10 years, but it's also a, a side of it that I don't experience at all being mm-hmm. a, uh, a white man living in the Valley. And this is a black woman living in, uh, again, I don't know if they're clear that it's Inglewood or what, but it's that, right. that part of town. um, It's, uh, it's, it's fantastic. And also my, um, um, my wife is is also enjoying the show because, uh, East character works, um, at a, uh, nonprofit that works with, um, uh, I'm not, I'm I'm not sure if the show is entirely clear about what exactly they do, but that's the world that my wife works in. Um, it's a, it's a really terrific and, uh, um, specific and heartfelt uh, and very funny show.
1: Okay, all right. Uh, so I've been watching South Park, and so I hear as uh, as they've been doing the last few seasons, uh, the we're in the midst of a of a season long arc, and you know they 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 treat some episodes as cliffhangers, uh, which is a lot of fun, um, and with this, they they they've introduced. A lot of elements that are seemingly disparate but as we're as we're as the season is progressing it's weird to be talking about South Park like this I feel like I'm talking about Lost um, but as the season progresses we are starting to see how these things are just inching closer towards each other and you see that like they're all symptoms of the same thing so uh, there's an election going on between, you know, a campaign between Hillary Clinton and Mr. Garrison, who is the Trump surrogate here. Okay. Um, but then in the midst of all these, and then there's like this a thing going on, like with the boys and girls in the school where there's like basically a, uh, se- a gender war going on. Cartman has a girlfriend, which everybody else finds deeply disturbing. Um, and in the midst of this, there are these things called uh, member berries or member berries uh-huh. and what they are, they're grapes essentially, but they, each of them has a face and a tiny little voice. And what they will say is, and it's almost always, it's almost always like relegated to star Wars where it's like <laughs> member Wookiees member, the star destroyer member, the death star, it's just that they were constantly asking, do you remember or uh-huh. remember this? and, the characters are getting addicted to to them, and somebody has now suggested that the same thing that co- that that is causing people to want to vote for Mister Garrison is the same thing that causes them to want to eat me- uh, member berries. And so, as the season progresses, they're going to tie all these threads together. And admittedly, it's there's still a lot of humor going on, but uh, more than anything, I'm just I, I'm I'm so fascinating and again this is not a new, new development the last probably two or three seasons have had this but it's just so fascinating that uh trey parker and matt stone have like after 20 seasons or i guess after you know 16 or 17 stumbled on this idea of like you know maybe we can embrace this maybe we can do this seriali- serialized thing and really explore some some issues which they have been and it's just been so fascinating to see
0: um, yeah, everything I've heard about South Park over the last couple of seasons has made me want to go back, uh, get back into it. Boy, oh, oh, boy. Um, okay, now you talked about a sitcom with cliffhangers. And you talked about Lost, and um, sometimes we find these comparisons in the uh, most unexpected places. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I, I think I'm pretty sure it was the AV Club because I re- read them constantly. I uh, had a had a an, a, a thing that. Uh, the good wife is the spiritual successor to the wire and made a great case, uh, for that. And after the success of lost every network tried to make their own lost. Yeah. Uh, and it took a number of years, but the spiritual successor to lost is the good place. Oh, okay. Um, uh, this is, a, I am going back and forth every day over what is my favorite new show of the fall season. Is it Atlanta or is it the good place? um, because the good place is so terrific. And as someone who loves lost, it's, it has so much in common in the sense that it is about a group of people who were previously strangers who now find themselves in a place that, um, spoilers people who only know the premise of the pilot of the good place may not be what it seems, uh, and whose backstories are teased out in flashbacks in each episode. Um, And also, in the same way that Lost was a sort of very um, superficial but edifying survey of pop philosophy Mm -hmm. or the history of philosophy, uh, The Good Place has its interest in ethics. And every episode, not in an overly, uh, you know, um, demonstrative or simple way, but every episode has some sort of ethical conundrum. Um, or raises ethical questions in ways that um, it doesn't put a bow on or hang a lantern on for you but um, that are very interesting because the idea of the good place is that everyone who is in the good place was the best of the best in their lives on earth. Um, what we've come to learn more about people that has is, is raised questions is uh, if you spend your life, dedicate your life to raising money for charity but you do it because you want to one up your more popular younger sister, right that seems like that's still no matter the motivation, the net amount of good work done, apparently that gets you into the good place, mm-hmm. whereas another character who devoted his life to the study of ethics and taught uh, at a taught at a college and wrote manuscripts that were never published about ethics, but never really did any actual good he also gets in as well it it's raising all these mm-hmm. questions in every episode about what uh, all the different things that it might mean to be a good person mm-hmm. um and meanwhile at the same time the more <laughs> we learn about this other plane or this afterlife wherever it's supposed to be <laughs> the less of a paradise it necessarily seems like there's um a fair like this is not a show that I thought of at the beginning as being a dark comedy, but it's becoming darker and darker hmm. uh, as it goes, um, and calling into question what we've been told about why these people were even there in the first place. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a fascinating show filled with uh, a ton of great jokes and a great core uh, cast. Um, you've got Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, mm-hmm. and then you've also got um, uh, Darcy Carden. And you've got um, uh, Manny Jacinto or Jacinto. And then I can't remember the name of the woman who plays Tahani. But there's five five main leads who are uh, becoming a terrific um, uh, ensemble every week. And it's, yeah, The Good Place and Atlanta are the two shows that um, when I – open up my DVR and I see that I have a new episode. Those are the two shows I'm most excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, now you and I had a very in-depth discussion about the good place and other issues before we recorded. Right. Um, which I, I don't want to transplant onto the podcast itself because right. it was, um, about more, uh, personal issues.
1: Um, but do you have any thoughts? Well, my first thought is, is, uh, and it sounds like the answer is yes, but Do you think that it can sustain itself? Like, can this sustain for several seasons?
0: Well, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but I talked about cliffhangers. Pretty much every episode of The Good Place has ended on some kind of cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And the most recent episode as of this, well, actually not because one aired tonight that I haven't watched yet, but last week's episode ended on a cliffhanger that seems to be blowing up most of what the premise of the show is. Okay, okay. Um, or at least the premise of Kristen Bell's character. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like they have um, a plan that's not just a premise of here's the good place and let's just have a bunch of wacky shit happen in it, which is what it might have seemed like in the first right. episode, as funny as the first episode is. Um, there's. It, it seems clear to me that the creators and writers have a deeper idea of what this world is that they've created, yeah. um, or at least enough to... Keep us on the edge of our seats for uh, uh, for the next little while.
1: Okay, yeah. Any anytime there's like a high concept thing, especially if it's you know a world or a character. Anytime it's like, oh, things are going to be revealed uh-huh. over the course of however long. You know, I just talked about South Park that they have sort of a new care a new season arc. So it will be it will be revealed over the course of the season, but in this case, it could wind up being the the well, whole series.
0: I, th- you know, I think the wise thing about the good place is that they didn't set it up as some place as a place where things are going to be revealed. They only teased out over the first six episodes or so that there might be more to be revealed. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's not like we're, it's not like it's not, you know, lost ended, you know, its first hour with the mm-hmm. guys, where are we? Right. Yeah. The good place doesn't have that sort of thing. It sets up, it spends the first act of the first episode telling you exactly where you are. And then it's only over the course of the next month or two that you come to realize maybe everything Ted Danson said is not exactly hundred percent what's going on here. And maybe there is more to be, to, to be teased out.
1: And if you think about it, you know, if they ever need sort of a, a break from that, the, the premise and the world and I say this having not seen a single minute of uh-huh. it, but like the premise and the world are unique enough that you could just have one or two episodes in a row of silly things happening in right. this place. Yeah. And it's like, okay, back to work. And in that way, it's almost like the X files where yes, right. There is the overall like aliens, uh, you know, the government cover up of, of alien contact. But then there's also case of the week stuff. And yeah. it sounds like this could do both, which is actually kind of exciting. I need to start watching it. I, I might throw it on while I'm while I'm working. Um,
0: um, and yeah, I, I talked about Woody Harrelson doing some of his best work in in The Edge of Seventeen. Ted Danson, who is no slouch uh, ever, right. is doing great work here because he's the architect of this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess you would call him if you had to. I guess you would call him an angel, but the, those things don't apply here. Right. Um, but he is only recently taken on a human form in order to interact with the humans in the good place. So there's this ongoing thing of him sort of experiencing human, even though he's a, you know thousands of years old, Yeah, he's experiencing human things for the first time. And it's like there's running jokes. In this most recent episode, he ate a saltine for the first time, which is something he'd always wanted to try. And he took a little bite, chewed a little bit, and he said, pretty dry. Too salty. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Um, Uh, And he also, um, there's another joke a couple episodes ago about there's so, uh, because there was a joke in the pilot about how there's frozen yogurt places everywhere in this, in the good place. mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he's eating frozen yogurt, and Kristen Bell is like, you know, you should try ice cream. And he's like, I did try ice cream, and it's great, but there's something so, he said, I like frozen yogurt because there's something so human about. Ruining taking something great and ruining a little bit so you can have more of it. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, you have a third show to talk about.
1: Yeah, so it's hard to say that it's that it's a, a whole show, but I have watched several sketches from the recent episode of Saturday Night Live. Oh,
0: I've watched two sketches
1: featuring Tom Hanks. Yes,
0: I watched Black Jeopardy twice, and I've watched David Pumpkins only once. But that's because. I haven't stopped
1: laughing long enough to watch it right. again. I have also watched the Sully sketch. I hear that's good, um, which is very good, uh, and and I'd say a bit more conventional, and okay. but it's but it's funny, um, yeah. But let's let's talk about let's first talk about Black Jeopardy, which I think is amazing. I, I agree. I yeah. love that sketch on so many levels, not the least of which. You know, and and I've read plenty of commentaries. It's, uh, there have been a lot of articles written about, about think that sketch. Pieces. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, that the idea is that you know, as so many people, and obviously there there are you know racial divides and that sort of thing in this country, but um, that the idea of well, if you are black, this is how you live, and if you're white, this is how you live, and it's like. Well, maybe let's look at it this way. If you're rich, you live one way. If you're poor, you live another. Right. And when you, when you look at Tom, Doug Uh in, in, uh, as played by, uh, Tom Hanks, you know, he's got his Trump hat. And so immediately you're like, okay, I think I got it. But you actually look at like his initial, you know, when, when the host is being incredulous about like, well, Doug, what are you doing here, man? Um, his response is actually kind of, uh, there's a certain sadness to it, which is like, he goes, I was told I could win some money, so I'm going to try and win some money. And then he says, yeah. get her done. But it's yeah, just the... He, says the uh,
0: uh, he said, they told me a fella could win some money. Or something. Yeah,
1: so mm-hmm. I'm going to try and win some money. And so there's just something about like, Yeah, that that does seem like the attitude of, and I believe he he, all three of them make reference to like scratch scratch off tickets, Uh and that sort of thing, Um, and all three of the characters have like, and including the host, like, seem to have a faith, uh, a Christian faith, yeah, um, as as evidenced by the fact that they love Tyler Perry, yeah, (laughs) Um, and that idea that there is. Way more that that if we let it, there's a lot more that does unite us. I know it's such a such a standard line, but like unite unites us then divides us, and then at the very end, it's you know the the categories lives that matter, and he says, well, I got a lot of thoughts about that, and it's like, okay, that's a that's a funny punchline, but actually, it got me thinking that is that merely a punchline or is that also a commentary that? Yeah after all of this stuff that these people have in common one more like this thing will show up and it will be like none of that existed yeah and isn't that a shame
0: like yeah i do think have, that's okay that's how i interpreted it okay as well
1: um I, uh, I love it i think it's great yeah,
0: i think you said everything that needed to be said about what the sketch is about but i want to talk about the comedy of it mm-hmm. and everyone is doing great work there yeah but that keenan And this is coming from someone who didn't grow up watching him because I didn't have people growing up. So I don't know about all that. I never saw good burger movie or anything like that. Um, uh, Keenan is so funny. Yeah. And he's been on Saturday Night Live for like 10 years now. Um, Has it been 10 years? uh, I feel like it has.
1: Maybe. Um, Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean. He doesn't look a day older.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. but he is a pro and he is the absolute MVP of that sketch. His, yeah. his delighted surprise. Every yeah. time Doug gets a black jeopardy question, right? It's, uh, that's what I keep coming back to. And I keep laughing so well, hard
1: at, and the first one, cause that's the thing that audience is responding to him uh-huh. and his excitement. And so when the first thing is, uh, you know, it's like you telling me, I think it's something like that, uh-huh. that, uh, that new iPhones like want your thumbprint or something like that. And then Doug comes in and goes, he goes, mm, I don't know. That's how they get you. And he goes, yes. And the way he <laughs> says yes, is just so it's excitement. <laughs> it's utter surprise. And it's, it's just so marvelous. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He, I've, I've loved him for a long time. Like this, the random sketches I've seen here and there, like he's always marvelous. Like when he's, when he's, uh, Oh my gosh, what's his name? Reggie or Reginald. I don't remember the, the, the rent is too damn high guy. Oh, okay. Uh, he's delightful in that. And then they did have a sketch of, uh, like a year ago that was, uh, (laughs) a Shawshank Redemption parody uh-huh. where he was essentially like Morgan Freeman. Uh-huh. And it was, it was at a, 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 what would appear to be a parole meeting, but his character, uh, <laughs> killed and ate sh- somebody. I think you showed me that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and just, and he clearly, he does not feel any remorse at all.
0: Now, um, the benefit of being someone like me who does not watch Saturday Night Live regularly and only mm-hmm. watches these, ske- these sketches when they bubble to the surface is that on that, uh, uh, aware of them running characters into the ground. So right. tell me they're not still doing What Up With That with Keenan. I don't know if they are, but I do love it. When they were doing it, it was yeah. very funny. I just hope they didn't yeah. drive it into the ground. But the uh, the Lindsey Buckingham thing. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I, I like I Keenan. Like maybe Kenan. they stopped doing it because Bill Hader's
1: not on the show anymore.
0: Maybe, maybe. Uh, and then, okay, David Pumpkins. David
1: Pumpkins. David S. Pumpkins. David S. Pumpkins. David S. Pumpkins. This thing... I would, in my mind, I am equating it with too many cooks. Like it is that level of brilliant to me, Uh (laughs) not merely the, the iconography of it, not merely the Uh crazy skeletons and Tom Hanks in that shitty wig of like like eighties curly hair and his, and his, but like his pumpkin suit and his pumpkin suit, which is actually pretty styling. (laughs) And, and the idea that this is all in this idea that, it's not like they're walking in, a, in an actual haunted house and there's David Pumpkins. They're in a Halloween Horror Nights type of situation. And whatever establishment put this out there, again, went all in on David Pumpkins. And OK, I'm so in the weeds. And doing yeah, pumpkins. Yeah. So all that is fine. The music that the skeletons dance to is delightful. The character of David Pumpkins, like this, is like up there. I've I've been saying recently, uh, not on the show, but I think like Tom Hanks is having like in the last few years has had like a career renaissance. Like I think he's done some of the best work he's ever. Uh, regardless of what we might think about something like Saving Mr. Banks, I think he's great in it, and I think he's marvelous in Captain Phillips. He's great in Sully. Don't forget Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas. Let's not forget. Yeah, at, at the very least, there's a lot of there's a lot of risk in his <laughs> in his performances. There. I'm gonna throw David Pumpkins in there. Uh-huh. This. The, the way, like what he does with his hands, like where he'll he'll point. And then there are mo- there are moments where he's not looking at you. Now, I don't think it's a cue card thing. I've seen him when he's like looking at cue cards. This is a guy who like might have a lazy eye or something like that. Uh, and just, and the stuff they give him to say, like the first thing he says is, how's it hanging? <laughs> Which is <laughs> ridiculous. And then.
0: See, we're sitting here trying to analyze this sketch, but it's just. It's
1: just so silly. It's so silly. Brilliant. But also, so much of David Pumpkins as a person and as a concept (laughs) is self-aware. He has answers ready for when they say, What are you what is David Pumpkins? He goes, his own thing. (laughs) 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 And (laughs) And the skeletons? Part of it. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's just and then the whole thing with any questions. I can't. I can't even begin to describe. I don't know who wrote this thing, but you know what? Here's what. Here's what it should happen.
0: Um, I looked up who wrote it. It's, okay. Um. And I forget. It's the two skeletons, one okay. of which is Bobby Moynihan. Bob, yeah. Sorry. And then a um a third writer who is not a performer.
1: Okay. That's who wrote it. Well, here's what they need to do. They need to take that Nobel Prize that Bob Dylan is not accepting. And give it to those guys, uh-huh. <laughs> because I've watched this thing many times now, and I don't think the joke can be run into the ground, because what is the joke? It can be run in the ground the same way as, oh, I don't know, if you were to watch Eraserhead eight times, uh-huh. can a Eraserhead get run into the ground, or will it continue to mystify you?
0: Now here's, You're right that it couldn't be run in the ground in the sense that you can watch this sketch forever, and it will yeah. always be funny. If they bring David Pumpkins back, right? That could be disastrous. If they, I because mean, lightning they, isn't going to strike yeah. twice. He,
1: they could bring him back like once, and that's the, it. Has to be Tom Hanks, and it has to be around Halloween. Yeah. So that's going to be pretty rare. But I guarantee you, the next time he hosts, if it's in October, uh-huh. maybe they'll book him in October solely <laughs> for this purpose. Like it is an instantly iconic character. And maybe it, I think you're right. Maybe because he only shows up just long enough yeah. to ask if you've got any questions, which he will not answer. <laughs> I can't, I'd seen like things floating around, but I had been really busy uh, doing things. And I was at Disneyland when I started seeing on Twitter, like hashtag David pumpkins. I'm like, what is this? I'm like, Oh, it's from SNL. Okay. That's interesting. So and then I, and I just, I was like, I guess I'll watch this. Even like going in knowing that people were saying, this is amazing. It doesn't even, even the stuff we've said, and we've gone over basically every quote unquote punchline. I can't even.
0: Well, we haven't gone over the, the Leslie Jones part, which is so
1: funny. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, let's not even go. Yeah. People have seen this, listener. If you haven't seen it, don't feel like we've spoiled anything for you.
0: Yeah, it's impossible.
1: It's so impossible. No, it's unspoilable. It's a, I, every time I watch it, I feel like it's my first time.
0: Yeah, uh, I want to watch it again right now. Um, I had another show I was going to talk about. I, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I'll just mention. I know I, I I I said this earlier this season. I wish you were watching Project Runway. I know you're busy, but it's it it felt like. A tease that you got into Project Runway just in time to not watch it anymore. Sorry. Uh, but this season has been great, and um, something happened a couple weeks ago that I've always wanted to happen. Because one of my least favorite things that they do on Project Runway, whenever they do a team challenge, is when it comes to the, the losing team, the bottom team, right. Heidi asks every one of them, who on your team do you think should go home? I hate that. I hate that. But what happened, what I always wish to happen is almost everyone on the team took the bullet almost everyone said uh i i I can't i don't want to see any of my teammates go down i'll uh, you know make it me uh and it was so touching that in the after someone was eliminated and tim gunn comes into the room to say goodbye to send the person to the workroom to clean up their things he was crying uh Mm -hmm. and it was an incredibly emotional um thing that has this is the first time it's happened in 15 seasons of project runway uh it was a really terrific episode so i just wanted to take a second to point it out yeah all right Any questions?